we are proud to announce the launch of WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia podcast network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You may have heard me mention the WrestleCopia brand in passing on a variety of our shows. You might be asking, what is WrestleCopia? Well, the name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast never continues to grow with a variety of podcasts. Everything from our show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we take a trip down memory lane to wrestling history's past as we analyze and dissect complete years of wrestling history from your favorite promotions, to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. To our newest podcast, TR Shocks the World, where host Tom Robinson makes his long-awaited return to the wrestling airwaves. Tom does everything from break down the current product to share inside stories and memories from years gone by. It's discretion advised as TR Shocks the World with his strong opinions, hilarious impressions, and so much more. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era, with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear that remain an enigma. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter, at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter, at WrestleCopia, for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. Turn it on and rip the knob off. Guys, what's up? It's that time again. We're back here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade episode 33. I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me, Mr. Steve Eckstat, getting ready to talk a little WWF, Steve. Yeah, this is my wheelhouse right here, so um, <laughs> I'm ready for it. The good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to take credit with this being my wheelhouse, but hey, man, I get what you're saying. I know you. this is like your big first full year. You really you were watching everything, and, and you got it all in your memory banks. It makes it a lot easier. A lot different from oh, yeah. the NWA in 89, but what a tremendous time that was going through the NWA in 89, all, those great, all that great talent and all those great matches we got to watch and see. So this is a very different era and a very different company here, the WWF in 1993. Everything is flipped upside down. They're, they're, they're trying to reinvent themselves, find themselves really here after the fallout of all the steroid the steroid trial coming up and all the big guys on their way out and some of the names just getting you know a little older and moving away from the company and it's that time to rebuild i guess and it's really the first rebuild of the company you you have to you have to think 92 93 yeah they had a pretty good what eight year nine year run um from 84 till here 
92 was a disaster financially. Uh, there's still some good there, I think. Definitely the changing of the guard. Steroid scandal really kicked their ass. The, the stuff with like Barry O and those guys, the sexual harassment claims and uh, they just got a whirlwind of negative publicity and they kind of started it on their own with in 91 with the Iraqi war crap. And they just, it kind of just fell all downhill after that. It's like they made the deal with the devil and it bit him in the ass, so to speak. Yeah, it's a long road of recovery here. And not only is it just all the scandals and things, like I said, there's so many moving pieces in the company. A lot of guys had to go, whether it was for it steroids or they, they kind of wore out their welcome, not in a negative way, just they'd been there so long. It was, there was really nothing else left to do with them. It was kind of <laughs> yeah. like, all right, time to build. I need some new toys, pal. And that's basically where we were in 92. And it was supposedly Pat Patterson who wanted to put smaller guys like Bret Hart, like Shawn Michaels on the forefront, put some of the weight on their back to carry the company, so to speak. Obviously, they never made the money that Hulk Hogan made Vince in the 80s and going into 90. But it's quite successful for him in the long run as far as keeping the company going, always knowing you got somebody you can depend on to put on quality main events. But that's a long ways off. We're mm-hmm. talking the entire 90s there, and this is really just the beginning. Certainly for Shawn Michaels, he hasn't even been just now moving into January. He's been a singles star for about a year. And uh, Brett's been not even two years, you figure, post-WrestleMania 7. It's really interesting to see where we are. And I'm calling this episode Setting the Stage because that's what we're doing here this week is we're setting the stage for the WWF in 1993. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW, Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down, from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, exclusively as part of the WrestleCopia brand, available on WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps. To begin things, uh, we have to start right off talking about all of the current WWF champions moving out of 92 going into 93, and it's really intriguing to see when all of these title changes took place because Within the last two to three months of 1992, all the champions changed for one reason or another. And it's really interesting because it's like a whole new company, really, when everything just changes all at once. And we got to start right at the beginning. And that go, we go back to October 12th of 92 at a Superstars taping. The match between Ric Flair and Bret Hart, where Bret Hart wins the World Heavyweight Championship. Now, I remember watching that as it happened, not the match, obviously, but that announcement, the weekend of uh, Superstars, and it just caught me off guard. Um, not saying Brett wasn't worthy of a shot, but he certainly was never placed in that main event position up until then. He wasn't viewed as the main eventer. I'm not saying I would be against seeing Brett in a main event, but it's just odd to see a guy who was upper mid card all of a sudden beat who, you know, I was trained my whole youth. Ric Flair is not, you know, he's always been a world champion no matter what I was watching. NWA, the WWF, he was a main event star. Macho Man, a main event star from the very beginning as far as I'm concerned. Bret Hart was never built to that. It's like they forced him into that spot because they needed somebody. 
And I'm not necessarily trying to talk negative because God, he certainly deserved it, you know, in the future, all the great matches he put on, everything he did. I, and, you know, he took the ball and ran with it for the period they gave him here. And it, and it got over for, for a time. Like I bought it by, you know, whatever. May, I can't even say Survivor Series necessarily, but certainly by the Royal Rumble, I bought it. Okay, Brett's the champion. Okay. But when I saw it, I'm like, well, that's weird. Because it's almost like if you went back a few years and Mr. Perfect beat Hulk Hogan and they just randomly showed it, you know, on update. And it's a, what the hell is it? And I'm not, you know, Mr. Perfect's probably my favorite wrestler ever. And uh, I'm not knocking him. But just, it, he's never been at that level, at that point, especially. Not, not, not so much here. I would have bought it here more than, you know, when he was right. getting the Intercontinental run. So it's just so weird. When the, when the announcement was made, it was so weird. It's like, Bret Hart's the have you? Is this real? And you kept waiting to see yeah. what the what the follow up was. Like, is he did he lose it back? Is is he losing it back next week? Like, what's the gimmick here? And I know you were you were younger than me at this point in time, but um, just I mean, just over the course of your life, not necessarily what was happening right then. I don't know if that had any you know anything on you at all when this happened. But moving for like you know further in life as you got a little older, like. What was your take on like Bret Hart, who had never main evented anything in the company, just give being you know th- that was the decision, that was a choice. Um, I mean, he did main event SummerSlam, but obviously that was built off the back of British Bulldog in in, um, in England. So he always says like they gave him, they had faith in him to be able to put on a good match with Davy Boy in England, and it was kind of a test for him. That's what he said. Um, so in his mind, he was more than ready for whatever they were about to give him. I didn't think he, he probably didn't expect it two months later or a month and a half later. Um, but me personally, like I didn't, I don't really remember watching much in 92. Uh, I, I remember like, like the beginning of the year with Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, I was like super excited. And I think a lot of that had to do with my, where I lived. I, I was, I live in Indiana and I'm like 45 minutes away from the Hoosier Dome or was the right. Hoosier Dome. It's no longer there, but. I, that just builds excitement as a kid because you want to go. Like it, it's an hour down the road. Why can't we go? We didn't get to go. And, I, and now reading the Observer, it's like, man, you could have got in for ten dollars at the door if you just went down there on the day of the show. Insane. So it's like, man, my parents, my parents can't even <laughs> go down there and get us in for ten bucks. Um, but you're trained, you know, mentally. Like it's already sold out. You can't get in. It's too late for that. Like right. you don't know paper and. Obviously, radio contests and stuff like that. But after WrestleMania, I didn't really follow the product, and I didn't really care. Like WrestleMania was over, the show left town, and it was kind of it. I didn't really, I don't recall watching anything. But I don't know what that has to do with anything. But when it came to '93, for whatever reason, Raw, I just started watching Raw, even though it was at the same time as primetime. I never really watched primetime. So when I started watching it week in and week out, Bret Hart was already the champion, and I was just okay. This is the champion. This is the guy we got to pay attention to. So that's how I felt as a kid. I was only six years old at the time, so um, <laughs> I'm not going to know much. But um, now looking at it, it is awkward. It is definitely weird. It's not what you expect. But when you look at the guys that look at the guys who were champions and look at the guys who beat them, and they all have something in common. Obviously, the natural disasters are big in other ways, heavy, you know, fat, whatever you want to call them. But then you just get all these smaller guys that are taking over the company, and you can tell like now like the steroid scandal played a huge part in this. And you look around the locker room and all this, you just get rid of all the, you know, the superhero guys and who, who are you going to go to? Savage just dropped the bell. You can't really go back to that. That would have been interesting. Obviously undertaker. I mean, who, who do you go to? And it's like, if you're trying to rebrand your whole company, 
who's who's one guy that's been there consistently since what eighty five as the with the Hearts? I think that's the and, point I was trying to make without realizing it is. Once we get to the roster here, we look at what we have. They had no one, and that's not a knock on Brett. I'm saying they had no other main eventers like a Hulk Hogan or an Ultimate War who would just out the door anyway. Tito not, Santana. <laughs> well, that's well. If you listen to Tito, yeah, that's true, and we'll, we'll touch on that <laughs> here. Sense. We can touch on that yeah. right now. Tito, Tito. I don't. For those who don't know, Tito's went on record many a time saying that he was uh, he was the one possibly being groomed to beat Ric Flair for the title here in October and become the new WWF champion. They were looking in, seriously looking into making Tito the next WWF champion. I don't need to tell you how ridiculous that sounds. I'm a huge fan of early Tito Santana. I love his other territory stuff, the little that he did outside of the WWF that, that's out there. I love his early WWF stuff. His stuff with Greg Valentine in the mid-'80s is just absolutely phenomenal. Tito was great uh, even when he was doing, you know, uh, I hate to call him a job guy, but, I mean, glorified job guy is what Tito was there. 89 after strike force split up for the most part <clears throat> um yeah. his, you know you always talk about that great bump he takes at wrestlemania 6 off the barbarian clothesline. It. it's a great bump it. uh, yeah it absolutely is. i mean but he was a there's another reliable guy and so bruce pritchard has said and you you know you can trust what he says with a grain of salt sometimes but he remembers things the way he remembers things i guess is what i'm trying to say but i do believe this he said was tito in discussion probably but so was everyone else. We wrote everyone's name down on a piece of paper and said, all right, these are the guys. So they're all in discussion, technically. Now we have to figure yeah. out which one is going to work the best. I'm not knocking Tito. In his prime, he was uh, one of the top guys to go watch. Uh, oh, like yeah. I said, the Valentine stuff is amazing. It's great. We, we've done a lot of that on Patreon. Uh, the old best of the WWFs and some of the other Coliseum video, we've watched a lot of Tito and, and Tito and Valentine matches. Uh, lots of good stuff there, but uh, to see El Matador as our WWF champion here in the fall of 92, I mean, he's not even cracking the pay-per-views at this point. He's doing the, yeah. I don't even know if he's cracking some of the dark matches here in 92. Funny enough, he does get a couple dark matches in 93, but yeah, yeah so it's. I, I, in Tito's defense, I will say like, I, I read the, I read majority of his book and I got to that point. I think I skipped ahead to get to that because I was curious about that. They did say, he did say that they wanted to expand into different markets and in um, Central America and things like that. So it makes sense in that regard that you, you put the title on a Tito and he can go to those places and automatically be over just because of who he is. And so when you look at it that way, when they were trying to explain globally uh, to a different direction, maybe that they haven't done a lot of, it makes sense. Um, if you just look at it with, okay, Tito Santana, really, in 92, that makes no sense. But well, if, if the WWF was based going, just in those countries, that would make sense. Like, yeah. for those who don't know, there's a televised house show out there somewhere of the WWF in Spain. And The Undertaker versus Tito. And Tito might be the very – I'm not sure. I'm not going through the old uh, list or uh, rundown of matches from 90, 91, or, or 91. I would imagine it would have to have been. Yeah, sometime in 91. Tito Santana pins The Undertaker in Spain. Pins him. The Undertaker. And he's Tito, this is pre-El Matador. Pins him with a pile driver. Might have been multiple pile drivers. I don't remember, but he pins The Undertaker. I don't know if he's the first person to do it, but he does do it. It's right there. Televised house show in Spain. It exists out there somewhere. So for anybody who knows how to find it, go find it if you've never heard of that. It does exist. So I'm not questioning their mindset is we know where we are. We, we know who to put over in this particular uh, region or a country or things of that nature. But once we, we go there like once a year, maybe yeah. two times a year, you know, depending on what country it is. I mean, 
Tito's Tito's champion's going to sell anything? I don't know. And they weren't big on hot shotting champs back then either. No, definitely. It's kind of like Jinder Mahal and the the India connections. And, you you know, it happened. I know we'll talk about this a lot, I'm sure, going afterwards. But they even put the belt back on Hogan so he can get the European tour in under his belt. So they did do things. Maybe they could have done it for Tito if they had a, a Spain tour and things like that to where he's a top draw in that area they could have easily just put the belt on him for that two or three months while they're over in europe and be done with it but that doesn't set your company up for what you want to do going forward and i think that's why bret hart makes the the most sense perfect's injured quite a bit he has the bad back how how long is he going to be around savage they wanted to part-time him so it's like you look around and there's nobody left and they don't do it's like and i think that's why razor ramon was uh, forced quickly, and we'll talk a lot more about that, you know, in the next couple episodes. But Razor was forced into the main event, and I'm not saying a guy that looks like that and a guy that you know has a great character like that shouldn't necessarily be introduced into the main event. But I felt like they they hot shot that world title shot with Bret at Royal Rumble because they had nobody else for Bret to wrestle. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's. <laughs> but we'll talk about the other two title changes real quick, and then we'll get into all the the wrestlers and things. So, Brett wins the world title from Ric Flair, the WWF title, sorry, from Ric Flair on October 12th, and the very next day at the Wrestling Challenge tapings on October 13th, Money Incorporated, which is Ted DiBiase and IRS, now managed by Jimmy Hart, defeat the team of the Natural Disasters, who were the champions, they lose them there to Money Incorporated. So again, the belts shift, and uh, part, part of this is Earthquake's on his way out. Earthquake's pretty much gone by the end of the year. He does come back and work the Royal Rumble match, but... He's really gone, technically, I, and we'll talk about that when we get to, to the roster and things. But it's kind of odd because we see almost a duplicate uh, re- reenactment of what happened earlier on when the disasters uh, uh, turned babyface were, were Jimmy Hart's managing two teams. And, well, well duh, there's only one t- tag team. There's only one set of tag belts in the company. And uh, that never made any sense to me. But, you know, anyways, so. The disasters turn babyface. The nasties are heels. Now here we are in the fall of 92. And now Jimmy Hart's got the money incorporated and the nasty boys. So now the nasty boys are pissed off. They're, they're losing their tag title shot to money Inc. So naturally now the nasties are baby faces. They turn babyface. So they're kind of feuding with money Inc. following this, giving money Inc. something to do with the tag belts and really our only tag team feud <laughs> here at the end of 92 is uh, money Inc. and the nasty boys. But so. Brett wins the WWF title, whatever day they taped the superstars, and the following day, Money, Inc. are now the tag team champions. So things are changing here. And then we move forward a couple of weeks only. God, all three title changes in a matter of like two weeks' time here. A a superstars slash Saturday night's main event taping, and I remember watching this match. This is pre-internet. I remember watching this match and having no idea who was going to win it or that Bulldog was on his way out or any of this stuff. So when Shawn Michaels, my favorite wrestler here in 1992, loved the character and just the way he, the, the, what he wore and Sherry and all this great, you know, everything just was perfect for the character for me. And I just thought it was so cool. So he beats Bulldog uh, for the Intercontinental title on October 27th. So in a matter of a couple of weeks, basically all of this airs or is announced by the end of October, early November. Actually, Saturday's main event aired something like... Uh, November 22nd, so it was going right into the Survivor Series. Yeah, it was like two or three days before the Survivor Series. Yeah, and um, so 
we have all new champions heading into the Survivor Series pay-per-view, which is uh, crazy. We've never seen all those titles change hands like that all at, all at once like that on every one of them on a different taping, though. And now we got all new champions moving into 1993. And I was curious, your take, like, Earthquake's on his way out, so we know the title's got to change, but apparently they thought the Nasties already held the belt, so we need something fresh. I have an odd, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, um, I noticed something as it was happening. I never see it mentioned online. I've never seen anybody else discuss it or think, or I, I don't know. You tell me. I think the original idea for not necessarily Money Incorporated, but a tag team, with Ted DiBiase was actually the Repo Man. Because if you go all the way back to Survivor Series Showdown mm-hmm. 91, who helps Ted DiBiase beat Virgil for the million-dollar title? The Repo Man. Out of nowhere. It made no sense. And they, they teamed up a few times. Um, yep. Tuesday in Texas. Tuesday in Texas against uh, Tito and, and Virgil. And uh, a couple yep. other times, I think, on primetime. Maybe even the, a rematch of, of, of that match. Um, but yeah, I think it was. And then it just uh, kind of went away, and they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna give him. Let's give him Irwin. Let's give him Rotunda because Rotunda is, you know, just more well-rounded wrestler, I, I would imagine." And it made sense with the DiBiase character too. I thought either one made sense. Uh, Repo Man, this guy's got money, whatever. He's the benefactor, you know, whatever shit. So it was really interesting. So they went with IRS, and you know, the rest is history, as they say. But uh, I never was a big fan. I loved DiBiase. I was never a fan of the IRS character. And, you know, we, we just did a year's worth of Rotunda matches. And sometimes he was really good. Sometimes, you know. Here we are again. S- snooze City. <laughs> yeah, we get to sit through this. I, but unfortunately, his IRS is almost always left. Snooze City. Unless he does the clothesline. Once he does the clothesline, that's, and then he's right back, uh, to the, right back to the chin lock. So. Well, we do get him with the kid. So that's not bad. <laughs> no, that's not too bad. Other than I'm still scratching my head as to why he won that match. But... Yeah, same here. <laughs> but so <laughs> I, I was just intrigued, like, um, your thoughts on the Money, Inc. team. I, I thought it made sense. You know, you get the tax man and you got the man with all the money. Um, but when you look at it now as an adult, it's like if you have all the money, you don't want the tax man around. So <laughs> in that sense, it, it's like he's getting audited they're auditing people so dibiase can benefit from it like you said uh it, it worked for me i never really had an issue with them the problem is, is there's just nobody else around to even have a decent feud with obviously we get the the mega maniacs and we all know that how that was going to turn out like there's no way hogan's going to lower himself to the tag titles so it, that was kind of a waste of time and then dibiase's pretty much wrapped up and done by the end of august so I think if IRS would have came into the company and went immediately with DiBiase, I think it would have been decent because you still had some decent teams around uh, a little bit, not much, very little, but you still had some, you could have had a decent few with, um, you know, I, uh, Virgil and Tito. So it's just the pairing, like they didn't really have anything for DiBiase. And you look at the other side of your ledger here, there's really nobody there he can feud with. That would make sense that he hasn't already feuded with and IRS has done nothing since he came to the company, so you might as well just give him something. Um, I thought they were good heels and everything. That, that's the theme of 93 is just there's some decent dudes on top. You got like one or two guys that are decent on top on each side of the ledger, but there's really no one there for, to feud with them. That's why you get shit, some shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, and then Shawn Michaels, yeah, he he was ready. This didn't feel rushed, I think. Uh, you know, you throw somebody through the window and and you beat Tito at WrestleMania 8, whatever the hell you want to call that crap at SummerSlam with Martel. 
Um, <laughs> Two of my favorites of all time, and that's the match we I did know, it's, oh, it's so bad. Um, yeah, two of your favorites back-to-back, you know, SummerSlam, and they, they're duds. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the way it goes. But um, I, th- I felt like, though, he, even though he wasn't – he was getting, like, chicken crap and turning into chicken salad. So it's like um, – I think he earned it, and he was ready. Like, I don't know who else you're going to go to in that situation either. But I, out of the three teams, Sean, I think, was the most believable taking over from – taking over the title from when he did the only the only thing that was abrupt was the bulldog it's like he just got it he got this big huge london win and you felt like he was going to be a champion for a while but obviously steroid scandal said otherwise yeah i mean uh, i remember sitting there uh cops was on uh the old the tv show cops it was still infancy infancy it was early on still so we're 92 cops it was a big show back then and um we were sitting, me and my cousin, my cousin was staying the night over at my house, but I think specifically to watch Saturday's main event with me, like we were going to hang out and have a, enjoy this, you know, and Al Bundy's hosting it and everything, uh, which you don't see on the uh, network version. They edit out all the Al Bundy, uh, Mary with Children uh, inserts uh, where he opens the show and does the little bits in between the matches and things. It was interesting here hearing Ed O'Neill say Papa Shango and <laughs> things like that, so... But I just remember that was the that was the match, you know. I, I, all year I was like, man, Shawn Michaels needs a belt. I, you know, I don't remember if I want him to be Intercontinental or even Heavyweight Champion, Delusional Me, here in '92. But like all year, you now it's just one year, you know. But for me, it was like an eternity, I guess, because I had seen Shawn Michaels for so many years, and I was a bigger Genetti fan for several years, like the early years of the Rockers, much bigger Genetti fan than Shawn Michaels. But uh, in singles, I was a fan of both. Didn't really care if Genetti beat Michaels, that didn't piss me off. Uh, but Michaels was probably easily my favorite in singles because he just had more personality and so much yeah. going on, you know, with his character and things. But yeah, when uh, it was a surprise to both of us, but we were both excited because he was one of our favorites, my favorite probably here in '92 uh, in the WWF. And to so when he fell on top of Bulldog, the finish was kind of like, oh wow, I didn't know that was going to be the finish. But I accepted it. We were like jumping up and down, excited and stuff. Made us forget all about the fact that in the TV guide it says. Ric Flair was going to wrestle the big boss, man, and, and they, you know, didn't fit on the show, whatever their original plans were to put on this show. I think that made it to a Coliseum video, but it was eh, like five minutes and boss man did the job. And so it was really ho-hum. But yeah, it was it was huge. I was excited. I was so happy. It was weird going to Survivor Series, watching heavyweight champion versus intercontinental champion, watching Sean. It wasn't for the heavyweight title, but it was a heavyweight title main event match, so to speak. So it was like, well, that felt out of place, a little weird, but it, was, it wasn't it was Hogan yeah. Warrior, you know? Like, Warrior was ready Definitely for that. Not. Like, people bought that shit. Um, oh, yeah. So that was a hell of a match. This was okay. rushed. Yeah, yeah. This is rushed. Everything feels rushed. I don't know if it's rushed or just unplanned shit, you know? It's like, this is the first time, like, some it's of the like stuff felt... Planned. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. So that's where yeah. we are. We, we're moving in here with all new champions, new things we had never really seen before. Bret Hart... Uh, who had never main evented, so to speak, like full full time main eventer, Shawn Michaels, who's got his very first singles title, and then Money Incorporated have the belts once again from the Disasters with a little help from the Head Shrinkers. So it looks like we're supposed to have a Disasters Head Shrinkers feud coming out of that title change, but it doesn't really happen unless it happens for a few weeks on the house shows. Because like I said, Quake's just about out of there, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. We're going to talk about the rosters, and for anyone interested, I actually posted. A picture of the rosters breakdown of the I, I, by tier. So main eventers, upper mid upper carters, mid carters, you know the lower job guys and things of that nature. Tag teams, managers, heels, faces, things like that. 
And I posted that on Facebook. I've posted that on Twitter a couple times, and I'll do it again. And uh, for anyone interested, you can uh, grab this, just like all of my other uh, notes, show notes, um, over at patreon.com slash Copia. And I think just for $2, you can get the show notes. So if that's all you're looking for, there you go. We'll talk. We can start from the top and work our way down here. We're, we're going to talk main event first because it really sticks out like a sore thumb, Steve. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but it's... Yeah, it's it's a scary sight, really. I mean, I, I'm not make I can't make excuses here for this at all. Here is your main event, uh, your main eventers as of right now. You have Bret Hart, who is the WWF champion. And when you hear the name Bret Hart for anyone young, they're like, oh, Bret Hart's always been a star. But for anybody who lived this, you realize this guy's been the main a main eventer for two months going going into 1993. <laughs> so you have Bret Hart. OK, and you have the Macho Man, which is a huge name. But he's a part-timer. Vince is trying to put him back in the announce booth, which you'll see on Raw, which you'll see on Superstars as we move into 93. So he's pulling Macho Man off the road, so to speak. So Macho is a main eventer, but he's really not even going to be working that often moving forward, other than to put over Yokozuna and things like that. Mm. So it's a, it's, And then you have The Undertaker, who, for better or worse, is more of a gimmick and doesn't necessarily need the belt. Uh, which, you know, unfortunately, he's pegged with a lot of bad <laughs> feuds and opponents for the next several years, but probably his worst oh. of all, and I think he's made this uh, a point to say many a times, is the, the giant Gonzalez, who, you yeah. know, is, uh, by everyone's account, was a really, really great guy, really nice guy, but I don't need to tell you, you know, from his in-ring work. So we're he- sitting here with uh, Bret Hart, who has been main eventing for two months. Uh, Randy Savage, who is no longer really even on the road, but I'm trying to be nice here. And I, I have him listed because he does actively wrestle, you know, sometimes in 93, yeah. we have the undertaker. Who's really more of a gimmick. He's not made to be the champion here at this point in the company. And I wrote by default, Mr. Perfect is kind of in the main event discussion to me. It's, he seemed like, and I understand Brett won the belt before Hennig had to come back and replace the warrior. So, and, and, and at Survivor Series. So, I don't know that Hennig would have gotten the belt if things had, you know, happened a little earlier. But it just seemed by Rumble time, he was the most over babyface by my, from, from what I saw. It and, explodes the night after the Rumble, yeah, too. Yeah, like and that it just, they just, next level. yeah, and it just never, they, I didn't, I don't understand where, what happened there. What it went wrong? Like a Pat Patterson thing, you know? Brett and Sean have always been his boys, it seems like. From all the reports, and you know, WrestleMania 12 was his baby and uh, things like that. So this makes you wonder if Pat had all the stroke. He wasn't stroking no Mr. Intended. P, huh? <laughs> No. He wasn't and, stroking uh, that P anyway. Hmm. No, wow. but I just, it just makes you wonder because Mr. Perfect's just as good as Bret Hart in the ring at this point, and he was over. They're kind of forcing Brett, and he did get over to an extent, but Mr. Perfect was that organic, natural, oh, shit, he just turned face on Ric Flair and Bobby Heenan. Like, that shot him to the moon. I'm with you, man. I think if the problem is is he had to finish the feud with Flair, and but if Warrior left at the beginning of October, he could have done that real quick. And um, who knows? Brett and Sean could have been for the IC title, and you had Mr. Perfect in the main event tagging with Macho going against Flair and Ramon. Flair leaves, and then you can get to Mr. Perfect and Razor Ramon at the Royal Rumble because it made sense. Uh, if Warrior left, uh, you know, a month earlier than what he did. Yeah, if it only only he had failed his test just a month earlier. Yeah, 
So, so this this is where we are in the babyface main event scene. We got Bret Hart, who is uh, as far as main eventer goes, really hasn't proven himself yet. You have Randy Savage, who's no longer a full timer even in the ring. You have Undertaker and Mister Perfect. Now we know Hogan's coming back, so you can kind of slide him in there, but he's not here. So at the end of '92, we have like almost nothing. Nothing. And then on the heel side, we have Razor Ramon, who's kind of forced into the main event here. And I'm not saying like again, just the look alone, okay, but I just feel like. They rushed every heat. Like, he went through everything too fast. He could have been built up a little more so he wasn't he doing rub, jobs though, so fast. Oh, I'm not yeah, arguing that. He, he got the rub with the flair and macho feud and and things like that. So when you look at it just like that, it does make sense, but it does stink that you're setting this dude up to basically be a jobber, uh, a top heel jobber, because there's no way you're going to drop the belt that quick. And what's Ramon done to even show that he needs it? Yeah, you know, and uh, it's funny, too, because Razor pinned Bret Hart on the on a house show I went to, like, extremely shortly before Bret won the belt, like, within a week or two. Because when Bret wow. won the belt, I go, oh, my God, Razor Ramon pinned him with his feet on the ropes. I remember this. I think it was maybe the old Bret, you know, where Bret comes out running off the ropes under the crossbody and the heel floats over and puts his feet on the ropes, like DiBiase did without the feet on the ropes. It's Survivor Series 90, something like that. But he pinned Bret, and, it, like, it's stuck in Scott Hall's mind. It must have been the only time he actually pinned Bret. Because I remember on an episode of, at least for the next year, Radio WWF, he, he said, they, they, somebody said something about him wrestling Bret Hart. He goes, I beat him once. And he, you know, he said where and everything. I, I kind of marked out. I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it might have been the only time he actually <laughs> pinned Bret Hart. But it was like right before Bret got the belt. So that stuck in my head. Like that made Razor even another notch higher for me because I'm like, hey, man, he, I saw him pin Bret Hart. And, yeah. And, and whatnot. So, but anyway, so you got Razor there, which is fine, but he's been in the company for like, Four months or whatever at this point, at least wrestling for about yeah. four months here. Yokozuna, who it just really debuted, I think, in November. So even though he's, he's being groomed for the Royal Rumble win, he's really not anything at this point. We don't know where he is on the card. You can look at him and go, That's, that guy's got to be in you know, like a main yeah, event. You knew. You but knew. at the same time, I mean, he's brand new. We know nothing about this guy. So he's good, though. Two of our three guys that are in the main event in the heel slots, they've been in the company two to four months at this point. And uh, they're unknowns. Like, well, I guess I knew that was Diamond Stud immediately when I saw him. Yokozuna, I'd never, to me, I'd never seen him before. I probably, probably saw him as Kokina in the AWA on ESPN at one, at one point, but I didn't connect it. In fact, I yeah, remember reading an After Magazine. Well, I didn't even put two and two together when he debuted. Because I remember reading an after magazine, maybe a couple months after he debuted, and it said, uh, Samu and Fatu, the SST, are coming into the WWF, and along with a third Samoan. I didn't. I, I just kept waiting for the third Samoan, Steve. I said, where the hell is this third Samoan? Uh, He's Japanese, so, man. Yeah. So <laughs> He was Polynesian when he started. So right. it could have been anywhere. Polynesian islands. You know, Poly- yeah, Polynesian island, islands there. But. So we got Razor, Yoko, and Flair. Which is, he's on his way out because the story goes, Flair is contracted to the WWF until September of 1993, but if he sticks around, Vince has already told him he's going to move down the card and kind of do like semi-main event, maybe even mid-card stuff, moving forward after the Royal Rumble and, and, and the, the Mr. Perfect feud. Basically, he's going to job to Perfect to build Perfect up for Lex Luger, and Flair's going to move down the card. And... Flair was told when he joined that if he was ever unhappy, he was going to be able to leave. And he basically told Vince, I don't want to be, uh, you know, an under, you know, an under, under, under the main event card guy. Rightfully so here by this point, I know he's already 42, 43, maybe at this point, but he could still go. 
And um, so there it was. Uh, he was on his way out of the company post Royal Rumble, <laughs> as you know, the Raw with Mr. Perfect. So Flair's yeah. on his way out. So our only main eventers are Yokozuna and Razor Ramon at this point. And those are great names, but they're brand new to the company. Historic, like now they're great names, not, not right. 93. And that's what people got to understand the context of everyone here. We're talking about this particular time period. People didn't even know what a Yokozuna was. Some people may not even have seen him here by the end of 92. Yeah. He'd only been on TV for two months. Like so. 1989, all those guys were already established. It's, there's no question that where, they, where, they, where they're pegged in, right. they belong there. Here, this is, this is a whole new ballgame for pretty much everybody. Like, I don't know if people understand the significance of the steroid scandal and what exactly happened, but they essentially fired like, or, or people quit, you know, like, what, 75% of their roster between, what, October and February, March of 93? It's pretty much a completely a whole new roster, a whole new ball game, And I think over the course know, of 92, a lot of guys were gone. Warlord, yeah. Hercules, Barbarian. This is early. Yeah, a lot of guys. Um, a lot of guys were gone, and it's like, this to me, like this would be the perfect company to want to wrestle for if you're a young pup and you never really had a chance because you're looking around and all these big stiffs that took all the spots are gone and now it's your turn to step up. You just hope they call your name, give me, put me in, coach. That sort of idea. So, yeah, it looks bad and money wise, it's probably bad as far as drawing. We all know that, especially for this time, but. Uh, if I'm a Bret Hart, if I'm a Razor Ramon, if I'm a Shawn Michaels, like I'm loving this because the guys that you know you're better than are gone, and now it's your turn. And um, there's nobody there to really hold you down. Yeah, most <laughs> of them keep, were successful. Keep on trucking, just yeah. keep on trucking, and you, you're going to get your opportunity. And it's it, that's one of the reasons why I like '92 and '93. I'm not saying it's the best stuff, and it's it's definitely not. It's far from it, but it's cool seeing different guys. Like if you watch. WWF from 87, 88, 89, whatever. It's the same guys all the time. In 92, 93, you get all new guys. You get different matchups that you haven't seen for, you know, five or six years. And yeah, it's, it's, just a, it's a lot of fresh stuff, advantage. no doubt. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it's good, but it's just cool to see those guys get their opportunity. Like, this is the foundation for the great careers of Brett and Sean and, and Yoko Zuna and some of these other guys. Uh, they solidified their careers in 93. And, that's really neat to watch. So as I look at this main event thing, as we move on to the, the upper card, upper tier guys, I, I see Brett, who's an unestablished main eventer here as far as the end of 92 goes. But I mean, he, he does well with what, what, you know, what he does. So it's, it's cool and all, but we got Brett, we've got the undertaker. We've got Mr. Perfect. On the other side, we've got the brand new Razor Ramon, brand new Yokozuna and Ric Flair, who's leaving in less than a month here, <laughs> January of 1993. There's really no main event scene whatsoever. We know Hogan's coming in. We know Luger and Giant Gonzalez will be in here very shortly as well, both at the Rumble, in fact. But, I mean, really, just looking at this, this is the most depleted main event roster maybe in the history of the company up, up until this point. Up until this point. Yeah, yeah not, not, not talking about the, the 2000s or anything. but 95 <laughs> takes the cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. I didn't even think of that. So we move yeah. on to like the upper card, upper mid card type guys. What does that mean? Well, I just kind of threw some names in here. Uh, Tatanka, obviously, still undefeated. He's getting that push. He's getting that intercontinental level push. Um, certainly, thanks to Marty. Well, thanks to Shawn Michaels, really, when we get to that story. Uh, but <laughs> we know Marty Jannetty returned on Halloween. Well, TV, as far as it aired on TV, he returned on Halloween. 
Marty Janetti's back. What a great angle that was, too. I mean, I marked out like I remember standing in the kitchen for whatever reason. I was watching that episode in the kitchen, and I was standing there. My my grandma used to have a little tiny TV. (laughs) She kept on this uh, cabinet stand or whatever. I love that. That's That's so old school, man. That's that's how she watched watched her uh, her soap operas during the day while she you know did whatever she did in the kitchen. But um, I love that. Watching Janetti hop the rail and get in the ring and that that shot that camera shot with the mirror and Sean looking in the mirror and seeing Janetti. Perfect. Perfect. It was perfect. And, uh, you know, Sherry wound up actually getting glass in her eye. So she had to go. I don't know if she had surgery or what they had to do to get it out. But that was unfortunate. Yeah, that's not reason she was out for as long as she was. Obviously, they were selling it for the rumble. But, yeah, she did get something in her eye from that. I remember reading. But I mean, what an angle. Like oh, it yeah. was, I, I marked out like crazy because I was a huge Marty Jannetty fan. So it was perfect for me. It was like, this is another one of my favorite. Like I loved all the guys that could work, you know, perfect mm-hmm. Sean, Marty, uh, Martell. So it wasn't necessarily heel or face with me. It was just guys that could work. And then for some reason, I loved the warrior. <laughs> so go figure. I was all, <laughs> all over the place. But so oh, for your upper mid card, you got Tatanka. You've got Marty Jannetty, who's just returned. I'd argue you have the big boss man who was always a, at least an upper mid carder. Uh, not but after he, the rumble. No, he's gone. He's also gone by February. And, th- and I'm not sure when they know it. They might already know it because, it, it, you know, going into 93, because you see the way he's booked. He's barely on TV. He's doing jobs in three minutes to like other, like doink the doink. clown. And yeah. Yep. So it's pretty much predetermined that, that he's, you know, basically done here. And I never knew why. It's not in the old observers. There's nothing going on. Uh, it was pr- prior to me going to the hospital with the COVID pneumonia and things like that, but I was listening to an episode of Jim Cornette. I, don't, I think it was the drive-through and he explained what happened, why the boss man left the WWF and even Corny, Corny loved boss because remember he was big Bubba Rogers. So he knew Corny yeah. from the very first day he got a gimmick from death day, baby of, and he made the job guy Ray trailer into big Bubba Rogers. He gave him to Cornette as his bodyguard. In his debut. So Corny's known Bossman since day one. So they were yeah. always friends, and he always called Cornette, asked him for advice, talked to him. They were always buddy-buddy, um, even the whole time he was in the WWF. And Cornette tells the story that Bossman kind of maybe believed his gimmick a little too much, being a law enforcement officer, because when the steroid shit went down, pretty much everybody in the company, including Vince, thought Vince was going to prison. And Bossman, Ray Trailer thought... Oh. That that would be a it would look bad on him to be a law enforcement officer and working for a company of a guy who's illegally, you know, selling steroids and doing all these illegal things. So he gave us notice and Cornette kind of basically said, you know, like, I don't know that Vince is going to prison and, you know, maybe he should stay there and, you know, collect these paychecks. Ray and but boss man in his own mind kind of, you know, uh, maybe believed in his own gimmick a little maybe like Bret Hart there or something. And uh <laughs> And he, Cornette was telling the story. I mean, just true is, and he's got such a great memory. And I don't, I can't, you know, ever word anything as, as well as Cornette can, but basically it comes down to boss man was a cop and he didn't want to look like a bad cop. You know, I'm thinking, dude, you used to beat people, you know, when they were handcuffed with a nightstick and that was all, you know, you know, it's fake and time, cool. Man. Yeah. But, but, um, <laughs> if Vince goes to prison, it'll, it'll look bad on him. It'll, re, you know, reflect bad on, on the police and, and the big boss man. So he wanted to leave the company. And that's why he gave his notice and, and quit the company right after the nails feud. So I, just, I was wow. like, wow. And I just heard that like in the last couple months. So that it sucks. really, yeah, it blows my mind. 
But your upper mid card here, though, is, is Marty Jannetty, <laughs> who's just back, Tatanka, who's pretty established by this point, uh, Crush, who's really done absolutely nothing other than, like, you know, sma- you know crush heads. job guys' heads, and uh, the big boss man who's gone, basically. And I put the Steiners here because they're the Steiners, but they haven't even wrestled yet, so they really don't count. And uh, Brutus Beefcake will be coming back, but he's not here yet. So eliminate the Steiners, eliminate Beefcake. Boss Man's leaving. He's basically a job guy, even though he was a upper main event or semi main eventer before that. So really, you got Tatanka, Crush, who's done nothing other than he's big, so he automatically gets a spot here. And Marty Janetti, and Janetti really only gets this because he's feuding with Shawn Michaels, who's the Intercontinental Champion. So you got Sean and Marty, you got Tatanka and Crush over here. And on the heel side, like I said, just said Sean, Bam Bam Bigelow, who, again, same show as Janetti's return, was the first Bam Bam vignette. It was also the debut of Doink in the crowd. So it was a huge episode, Halloween. I remember that, 1992. Janetti returns, we get our first look at Doink in the crowd and the first Bam Bam vignette all in one show. So here we have Bam Bam, who's been back two months. So he's huge, so he automatically gets the pass straight to the uh, semi-main. Been there a few years earlier as well. So Sean, Bam Bam, Doink, who has yet to wrestle. So we really don't know where he is on the card or that he's even a wrestler. And Jerry Lawler, and I only put him here because he ends up feuding with Brett later in the year. Right now, Lawler's really just an announcer and does nothing uh, yeah. other than gets his crown shit in at the Rumble. Yeah. Uh, or if you watch yeah. that that show on A&E, I mean, he doesn't even debut until King of the Ring. But whatever. How people forget. Yeah. So anyways, like right now, you're looking at uh, Sean. You got Marty, Tatanka, and Crush. And you got Shawn Michaels, Bam Bam Bigelow, who's done nothing at this point. Not his fault. Doink hasn't even wrestled. So we, like I said, he's a clown. So I'm not even thinking this guy's a you know upper mid card guy or whatever. So and, and then Money Incorporated, DiBiase and IRS, obviously uh, the best tag team wrestlers you have right now. So really, almost nobody. Uh, you, you've got like nothing. Here. No, Sean. No, no established. Um, no, no, Sean. But. Sean's Sean, been established. Sean's That's, there. Yeah, he's there. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, out of the two, both sides, Tatanka and Sean are really it. Yeah, it's I like mean, I said, no, Crush I by I default. I think, fine, I think Bam Bam and Crush get the default based on size and look and things. But I agree. Established-wise, Sean yeah. and, and Tatanka, and to me, Marty, because he's feuding with Sean, and I bought into that. So that worked for me. But again, Marty's all over the place because it depends on who he's feuding with. But it's just Marty is there because he's feuding with sean and that's really it if he was feuding with somebody else i don't think he'd be up there but that's what i'm saying yeah, you had that yeah you, you have that hot angle and that hot you know feud and everything there's no doubt that he's definitely upper mid card he, he was brought back solely for this feud with Shawn michaels and if you have Shawn michaels on the upper mid card then marty has to be there by default no doubt about it so and then we know marty's gone after the rumble as well for thanks to sean so, yeah. And that's our upper mid card. Again, scary thought here. Um, obviously, Bam Bam will establish himself. Jerry Lawler will eventually get established as a wrestler. Doink, but Doink. as of right now, these guys mean nothing. Doink hasn't even wrestled. He hasn't even spoke. He doesn't even have a name yet. He's that clown playing pranks right now, going into '93. It's so crazy. We're sitting here, and DiBiase's an upper mid card, and he's just he's just there, <laughs> and he's just there. Like he he's in a tag team, yeah. so he's only there because of his name value. Really, it's not because he's yeah. doing anything to to it's, to be there. It's crazy to think about considering how long his run was from the time he came in. Like this is his first downward, you know, motion since he came in in 87. You yeah. know, he, he was the top guy that whole time. 
even this feud with Virgil, people get shit on Virgil and talk about Virgil all day. That was over, man. That was over. That was so. Go watch Rumble 91. Go watch SummerSlam 91. Tell me Virgil wasn't over. It's cool now to make fun of him with his meat sauce and fuck money and breadsticks and shit. And, you know, and those funny pictures where nobody's in line with him. But I lived 1991. I mean, I lived 1991. I lived those vignettes where he was hinting at turning going into the Rumble. Oh, yeah. I bought all of that. Hook, line, and sinker. The turn was huge. I didn't care for the the WrestleMania match. It was pretty shitty. But the SummerSlam, I bought it. He won the belt. Yeah, he needed to win the belt. um, Sherry established with DiBiase to start that. But, no, I just ran through the 91 pay-per-views. And uh, to be honest with you, Virgil winning the million-dollar title at SummerSlam 91 got a bigger pop than Brett winning the IC title against Perfect. Yeah, That's how over Virgil was. Right. That, that feud resonated with people. And just think about this. Dusty and Dustin Rhodes were afterthoughts. They jobbed and got the hell out of town, and they were afterthoughts to yeah, Virgil that, turning face. Like, yeah, they, they, they went were to WCW. Dusty yeah. Rhodes was afterthought. Like, Dusty came into that match as an afterthought, and I don't mean just by the booking. I meant you can tell what that. Dusty's doing. He's he's already afterthought the entire night. He's yeah, head of WCW, BBIV. You say that in 2021, you're like, Dusty's an afterthought? No way. No, he was. You could have anybody on, on that other side of the ledger for DiBiase and Virgil. It didn't matter. Everybody knew what was going to happen, and they could not wait for it to happen. That oh, was huge. Um, it was massive. So you, people can shit on Virgil all you want, but that dude was over more than most people could dream of today. For a good six, seven, eight month run, hell, it lasted till Survivor Series. Yeah, I think when That's they took the, the million dollar title off of him, it was like they were done pushing him. Yeah, that was, and was just think, like, if you look at that that team, <laughs> you have Piper, Brett, Bulldog, and then you got Virgil. Which one doesn't fit? Obviously Virgil, but at that point in time, that moment in time, he fit right yeah, in. He, yeah, it was guys. like a really good and, uh, team. It was like, wow, okay. Yeah, so people shit on them all you want, but um, yeah. But that was really it. After that feud was over, DiBiase was done as far as his... I mean, his career is pretty much done after that. That was it. And now this, Steve, is where things get really scary. Because this is your 1992, beginning of 1993, mid-card. And I use the term mid-card extremely loosely when you look at these names. These are the guys that fit into the mid-card. You have Jim Duggan, who's basically not even full-timing it right now. He's doing jobs and things. Tito Santana, again, who may have been the WWF champion, but for the most part, he's <laughs> just doing jobs. Earthquake, who basically is gone. He is gone. Uh, not basically, yeah. he's gone. He's done in 1992. He doesn't even finish out in 92. So he's already gone. Like I said, he comes back like a couple other guys. It works the Rumble match, but he's gone otherwise. So he's coming back for that pay-per-view payday, another big guy or whatever. But other than that, he's already gone. So Duggan, Tito, Typhoon. The Nasty Boys, Kamala, who hasn't come back yet. He's about to, well, he's about to, no, he, he's come back. He's about to turn baby face and, you know, he's going to learn how to bowl. So that's where we are there. Uh, Bob Backlund, who's been doing the vignettes. I don't remember if he come. He, he's probably already back on TV by the end of 92. Uh, yeah, that, was, that was a failed, failed project. Um, uh, re, reverse time and have Backlund come back as like a 1979 version of himself. Uh, <laughs> just, that just didn't work. And I'm being I like nice here. I like it. I like I his put, rumble. His, yeah. His rumble. <laughs> uh, that was the only thing that got him. I think it was the only thing he was over while he was, while he was in the company there. It's a baby face anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then I put Owen here to be nice because it's Owen. But let's be honest. Owen was a mid-carder here. 
<laughs> during the high energy era. Half the year, right? Later, yeah, he later leaves, in 93. Don't he? he doesn't leave the company. Back. Um, he just isn't around. I don't even remember him watching him very much. He's yeah, if you watched All American, much. you'd see him do a job to Bam Bam and guys and whatever and things uh, like that. I don't. I don't think. He, I don't remember him much on Raw. I do know like he picks up no, steam no. heading into '94, like around the Survivor Series showdown time. Right uh, when uh, Brett talked Vince out of trying to use Bruce Hart as the uh, the feud and then turned it into Owen. Thank God. Thank God. That, how how do you Brett? You're a dick doing that to your own brother. Bro, I don't want Ooh, you. I don't yeah, want this yeah. brother. I want my other brother. I want the one I can have good matches with. Give me my, Owen, brother. My other brother is a lousy, stinking hyena. <laughs> he costs Bruce a lot well, of money. Bruce is the the blonde hair, the other blonde, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And Keith, Br- Bruce wrestled the, forever. I, was, <laughs> I, was, I thought it was Keith, but uh, no, I, I like Bruce. I thought Bruce looked awesome when he was uh, tagging uh, Survivor Series. Well, Bruce but... worked forever. I mean, he teamed with Pillman and, and Stampede near the end of the Stampede run and things. But Bruce was older, you know, and he really wasn't the worker in either Brett nor Owen were not even close. No, no, uh, nobody is in that family besides Owen and Brett, but different times, obviously. So our, our our baby faces are the comedy act Kamala, uh, the, the the 1970s Bob Backlund. Um, <laughs> I can't say Earthquake because he's gone. What's that? When did the Nasties leave? They're gone uh, before WrestleMania, right? No, they're gone after WrestleMania, but it ain't too long. I'll get the exact date as see, we go like, on. I don't know. I, okay. I did. I did a bunch of research for the first several months. I know. I know they they're there way after I thought they were, but it's probably more. On the I just don't remember them being like featured. You know, they're well. You think the Nasties? Yeah. They were one of those teams, and they just had that feud with. It almost like died when Hogan and Beefcake came back. Like, oh, it did die. Money it did. We're feuding with them yeah. now, brother. Which is sad because maybe <laughs> that's why he's like Nobbs' buddy or something. You know, I don't know. I doubt that. <laughs> so our nobody. our mid card baby faces are like a a uh, a dying Jim Duggan. Like let's face it, he's done by this point. He does get squashed. I can't uh, wait for that. That's a great uh, angle too. That is a great angle. Uh, Tito Santana, Arriba, or I'm sorry, Ole, because we're in ninety two, ninety three. Uh, Typhoon, <laughs> like I said, bowling with Kamala <laughs> and uh, Opie Bob Backlund, and on the heel side, some of the names you might go, oh okay, but then listen, so. On the heel side, sad to say, down to mid-card status, the model. But he's gone. He comes back and works the Rumble match, but he's gone otherwise. Berserker, who's gone by February. He's gone. January is the end of the Berserker. And and boy, the first week of... He's gone mentally, or with me anyway, after the first week of 93. You can't wait to get to that. Berserker and the Hennig match, where Berserker gets like one move of offense in the entire match. Um, <laughs> he doesn't care. No, he John Nord could give a shit less, but um, <laughs> me as a fan, like, why is this giant guy not getting, like, one, one, one real move in? A knee to the back, that's about all he gets. So, like, the model and Berserker, those sound like great names, but you got to remember they're both, like, being treated as mid-carders, and they're both gone. So what does that leave us with? Well, uh, the Repo Man, who is nothing the here. The full-on mask, well. right? And yeah, not yet. And on white <laughs> pants. Not yet. That's like for for one match. Uh, I think that's after WrestleMania, that's right mania. around WrestleMania. I think that's yeah, mania, right? somewhere around there. Oh shit! Papa Shango, who is basically nothing by this point. Boy, did they drop the ball on that? What a look! But I guess he really wasn't ready wrestling wise. I don't know that he ever got ready wrestling wise. To be honest with you, uh, not just the character, but but Charles Wright himself. He's, he was, he's like he's a good guy though. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. I'm not saying that. Hell, just look at it. Hey, man. I was sold on the Papa Shango, not the voodoo part, but just the, the look was awesome. Oh yeah, so. yeah. that's the, that's 
if that dude was six two, six three, he would not have a career. <laughs> he's six eight, six nine, and he's just massive. He's naturally built. He didn't have to work out really. He was just big. So like cool I knew looking. I knew all this wasn't real by this point, but I was still like confused. I didn't understand like D pushing a guy that I went and saw wrestle the Undertaker in my in a main event of a night. I went and saw wrestle the Ultimate Warrior in the main event of the show. So he wrestles those guys, and now here, you know, he's basically he's doing jobs for Brett. Yeah, Brett does job to, to Brett. Yeah, when Brett had to beat everybody, including Virgil. <laughs> so <laughs> the mid carters are like Repo Man, Papa Shango. I mean, Berserker's gone. The model's gone. The Beverly Brothers, who are basically, I'm, I had to put them as mid carters because they're not job guys, but they are job guys. If you look at the house shows, not only are they they lose every match, but they're not on TV barely ever going over, mm-hmm. and. If you look at the the results, especially the early months of 1993, they're fill-ins. So, like, if Berserker gets injured, Bo, Bo, let's just throw Bo in there. If Papa Shango's got a separated shoulder, oh, let's throw Blake in there. It don't matter. And they would go in there and do the yes. job for whoever. They they were, like, just like next it. man up. Yeah, so they're, like, job guys, even though I put them in mid-card here. And I put the head shrinkers here, too, because they really aren't completely established yet. So it's like there's nobody. You eliminate the tag teams, and you have Repo Man and Papa Shango. That's what you have in your mid card, man. Do you remember the mid cards of like 1989? A... I mean, shit, man. Oh, Jesus. Uh, it's <laughs> night and day. I think we should have like a mid year check in. Like, let's uh, maybe not go in as much detail, but right. maybe just run through the teams and the roster. That's okay. This is where we was at in January, and here we're, here's where we're at in July. Let's see if it gets any better. Yeah, that'll be really interesting because I have to imagine it can only be better, hopefully. God. Well, we get the, God. You get the kid and. Some other guys coming in, so yeah, absolutely, it, it does get better. So now we move down the roster into well, I don't know if you can really move much further down than like Repo Man and, and Typhoon and, and shit like that, but I, I'm gonna try. So, so we go down to the lower end, the lower card guys, and some of the job guys that are under contract with the company. We're looking at Max Moon, who was actually fired and then rehired, and we'll get to that after we go through the roster here. But Max Moon was Paul Diamond, who also portrayed Kato. As a member of the Orient Express, obviously they, they were pretty much done with him at that point. Once Kato had basically jobbed everyone 400 times on, on syndicated TV. But Conan decides he's not going to do the Max Moon gimmick anymore, the comic kid at the time. So they had to find somebody that fit the suit. So they give it, uh, Paul Diamond steps in. Hey, I was, I did Kato. I can, I can do Max Moon. So he becomes Max Moon and he works the gimmick there for what, two, three months. And he gets fired for a very particular reason, which we'll get into in a little bit. But then he gets rehired because another lower-end guy, and I only say this because I can't really tell where he was meant to be pushed on the card, was a newcomer named Lance Cassidy, who was actually Steve Armstrong from the famed Armstrong wrestling family, the Wild-Eyed Southern Boys with Tracy Smothers, Young Pistols, however you may know him. But it was Steve Armstrong coming in, doing, well, he's basically dressed like a Southern boy, had the guns on his ass and all that Good, good stuff. Supposedly, he was eventually going to become a singing cowboy. Vince saw, realized, uh, heard heard him singing, didn't know he could sing. So Vince wanted to turn him into a singing cowboy, but that's not what made him quit. Uh, he was only there, again, two, three months. He quit in the middle of January, or the early part of January, did Steve Armstrong. He quit, supposedly, because he was homesick. He wanted to be in the South. But not only that, um, I guess he kind of thought the character was going nowhere. He really didn't have any push-push behind him, and... It just wasn't worth it to him. So he winds up putting in his notice like the first week of January. 
And Max Moon looks out. Paul Diamond looks out because he had been fired for, we'll get to what he did here in a few minutes, for those who don't know. But he gets rehired because they needed somebody to fill in for Lance Cassidy on house shows. So, boom, Paul Diamond gets his job back for a while. Uh, so that's where we're at here. So Max Moon, uh, Lance Cassidy, Steve Armstrong's gone by the first week of January, so you can't really count him. You have Coco of high energy. We were just talking about Virgil and how over he was in 91. By this point, he's a job guy who's lucky to make TV. Virgil here going into 1993. And then the Bushwhackers who are on a part-time contract. So <laughs> the lower-end shit, which this is lower-end shit. Don't get me wrong. Virgil, Coco, the Bushwhackers. Well, a lot of those guys made it to the Hall of Fame, so I don't know. Maybe they were doing something right. Virgil couldn't even get in over uh, Pistol Pez Watley or Brickhouse Brown, so he's pissing somebody off. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till he passes, and then they'll just throw him in. It's one of those uh, ones that don't really get to shine because nobody knows who they are anymore, which is sad, but I hate to say it that way. I don't mean it in that negative way. No, I know exactly. That's that's just the way it is. To Vince, it's about making money, and Pistol Pez Watley's not going to make anybody any money. Um, not in today's world. Everybody knows who Pez Watley is if you're a real wrestling fan, but casuals, nope, they're not going to spend money on that. But yeah, very, I mean, to be honest with you, these are decent lower job guys. Like Coco and Virgil can put on a decent match with somebody. Oh, I mean, dude, and again, uh, like, you know, when we good. were talking NWA, we're shitting all over Tommy Rich. We're shitting all over 1989 Tommy Rich, 1989 yeah. Michael Hayes. I'm not shitting on what Michael Hayes did when he talked everybody into the Superdome, into the Sportatorium, into the Omni. I'm not overlooking any of that. I love going back and watching his promos in Georgia and the stuff with the Von Erichs in Dallas. There's not a whole yeah. lot of the um, the Mid-South stuff out there, unfortunately, but there's a little bit out there. But I love, I mean, I, I could watch the, the programs he did in Georgia all day long. I love the Freebird stuff, all the promos they cut there with, the, with Freebird playing in the background. But... Michael Hayes in 89, not so much. Tommy Rich in 89 in the ring, not so much. And that's where I am here with Coco. Like, Coco is what he is here. Let's just be honest, going into 93. Can he put on, you know, a great, fun match? Yeah, absolutely. MC Hammer Matt Pants and uh, (laughs) (laughs) pulling up his britches when he's coming down the aisle. (laughs) Above his his titted. Yeah, I I enjoy Coco. I love his dropkick off the top rope. Um, High Energy actually had a pretty good match with the head triggers in that Survivor Series. Nice. Oh yeah, they did a great job getting them over. Uh, So um, establishing them as a a hell of a team. Uh, The head. I think that if I just wish you had more brutalizing tag teams uh, that could take advantage of a team like high energy they're gonna make you look good and um, (laughs) you look at the other side of the legend. I just wish they had more tag teams. Period. Which we'll get yeah, to here in a minute. Yeah, there's nothing there to take advantage of that. But yeah, those are decent guys that you would want down there, uh, just because they were established at one point in time. And that's one thing you can say about WWF fans is they know who they're supposed to know for the most part. And like, oh shit, that's Virgil. He just got destroyed by this guy. Well, this guy must mean something then. So I will say like that's one of the positives of some of these lower guys. Well, the scary thought here is how close these lower tier guys are are to the mid card guys at this point. Yeah, yeah. Coco, Repo Man. I mean, mean, there's not a giant jump in quality there, especially 1993 Repo Man. Tito's been jobbing since '89, and let's be honest, Tito was jobbing before '89. He was jobbing all through that period when when Can Am Connection were together. If Tom Zink doesn't leave the WWF, Tito Santana's a job guy. I mean. He was basically doing what he was doing before that. 
I mean, he was literally getting stuck in tag matches on TV where you're already standing in the ring with Jim Powers and doing a job, you know? So Tito was already looked at in that facet, sadly, basically after he finished his stuff with Savage in 86. I mean, he probably did a little more in 86, but yeah, if you, if you go back and look, I wish you would have done a little bit more with Butch Reed in 87. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that that would have been been a better match than Coco. I think too. Cause you had that angle after WrestleMania three. And I think if, if Butch Reed would have showed up to the date and won the IC title, it maybe Tito would have slid in there and maybe got one last run at his belt or something. I don't know, but um, definitely some possibilities there if, if they would have went with a a better heel champion than than Honky Tonk. But so yeah, I mean it's, El yeah, Matador it's, and Coco can you can flip them and it doesn't even matter. They're the exact same. I mean, you know they're both losing. I mean, Tito's probably yeah. looked at as a higher level, but yeah, you know neither one of them are going over in a real match. Yep. So so it's scary how close the almost basically the TV job guys or the lower end guys are with the mid card here. It's, it was never like that before. And over on the heel side, there's very few guys here too that are under contract that are that are doing jobs. You got Skinner, who's really not beating anybody outside of you know. Well, I don't think he's winning any matches. You've got Damian Demento, who's already debuted, but he's doing jobs by January on TV. High-profile jobs to guys like The Undertaker and things. Surprised Brett didn't beat him. Probably didn't want to get in the ring with the guy because he was terrible. Just terrible after uh, reviewing some of his matches. I didn't realize how bad he was. Great look. Terrible in the ring. Awful. And it's sad, too, because he's one of those guys that were built up huge in the aftermags. Like, his picture was in every aftermag during that era up until he got hired by the WWF. Because he had the size and the look. Unfortunately, he couldn't put it together in the ring. You got Terry Taylor, who just randomly pops back up out of nowhere in the WWE. They killed him as the rooster. Tremendous neon green (laughs) uh, jacket and matching tights to go with it. Just excellent. (laughs) Tremendous. Uh, Yeah, sure. That's one word for it. And uh, for those who don't know what Steve's talking about, you can go on the Twitter and our Twitter account at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. You can tell Terry didn't give a shit because he didn't spend 10 cents on that gear. He never wore that jacket and trunks again or before. I don't know where they came from, but uh, he, he he reverts back to his uh, the old red jacket by, by the time we get to Monday Night Raw in January 93. But, I, yeah, the match I'm referring to, I got pictures up online. The jacket is just insanely cheap, even by 92, 93 standards. And the trunks, trying to fit the word terrific across his ass, <laughs> doesn't, even, doesn't even fit. So it's it's insane. But so we have the Skinner, we have Damian Demento, we have Terry Taylor, who's basically as soon as he comes in, almost a semi-retired part-timer because he's hosting all American episodes and things by January or February of 93. And we have the Brooklyn Brawlers slash Kim Chi, who's going to be doing Kim Chi matches versus Kamala in early 93. So that's your, that's your, uh, lower tier guys. Uh, unbelievable. Just, it's, it's crazy. Then I look at the tag teams really quick as before we move on with some of the other stuff. Really, all we have, the disasters are done. The Bushwreckers are part-time. I hate to even include them here. So we have, like, high energy, and the Steiners haven't wrestled yet. So we can include them if you want, but they haven't wrestled yet. So we've got the Nasty Boys and high energy. That's our babyface tag teams in the WWF right now. That's it. And oh, remember... we got the, the Steiners. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you have Coco and Owen here who are basically, they, they job in any singles match they're in. But we have high, high Energy and the Nasty Boys. And on the other end, we have Money Incorporated, 
the Head Shrinkers, which are both very fairly solid heel teams. I'm not knocking that, but oh, that's really good teams. But that's about it. And then you have the Beverly Brothers, who are essentially they job die guys. At Royal Rumble. They die at Royal Rumble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the Frankensteiner. Yeah, and, uh, I, this may not be the right episode to ask this, but did Owen blow out his knee when he got eliminated? No, no, no. That Hell of a bump, nasty. though. Oh, I know. I remember watching it live and and beyond. Every time I watched it, I go, yeah. Every time he... I see it, I'm like, oh, how did he not blow his knee out? Yeah, so, it's uh, insane. Anyway. The elimination. Yeah, no, um, but yeah. So we have on one side, it's the Nasties who were feuding with Money Inc. and High Energy who are not really feuding with anybody. They're there to put people over. And on the other side, it's Money Incorporated, Head Shrinkers, who have really nobody to work with. And the Beverly Brothers, who are basically essentially jobbers to the stars, if you will. Uh, that's about it. That's, that's all we got. In the ta- it's crazy to see how depleted the tag teams uh, became uh, over the course of the early 90s. If you just oh, think right. back to the like Survivor Series 88 and all those teams standing in the ring at the same time. Insane. Oh it is. Even yeah. 87. Um... Sure. But yeah, you know how how is it how somebody had to lose interest in tag team wrestling uh, going into this. I, I, to be honest with you, it felt like the tag team division. I know LOD came in, but it felt like after WrestleMania Seven, um, after the Hart Foundation disbanded, I felt like that was the end of the golden era of tag team wrestling in WWF. Uh, I think that was it. You know, demolition was already done. The the hearts broke up. Everybody else is already gone. Like the Bulldogs, the Rujos. They buried, and they buried power and glory for getting over. Yeah. So like, I I just feel like yeah, that was it. Like once the Heart Foundation was done, there's really no working class tag team uh, left. I mean, obviously the LOD and the Nasty Boys, Natural Disasters, things like that. They're there, but when you think of the tag team wrestling, I'm thinking those badass teams that can work, like the Strike Force. Rockers, Hearts, Bulldogs, Brainbusters, yeah, Brainbusters, all those guys. Like you can go on Demolition. Even the Powers of Pain were decent as far as being nice. Powers of Pain pieces. were decent when the Barbarian was in the ring. I'll give you that. Much. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just felt like <laughs> no. I know nice, what you're saying though. Yeah, like, no. uh, nice counterparts to some of these other good teams, like the Bulldogs and Demolition, and those guys can make them work and get them get them to have decent mass- matches. So. Uh, even the worst of the worst of that division in, in like 88, 89. The Bolsheviks? <laughs> well, besides them. <laughs> I was thinking Powers of Pain since okay. that's what we were talking about. But yeah, like, yeah. It, teams that were relevant, here. actually, uh, actual like teams like, you took You throw them in here, and they're like probably your champions in, yeah. in 93 if they de- were still de- there. De facto, obviously, yeah, by default. And everything. Yeah, by default. By like yeah. that, that, the, the worst of 89, not counting the Bolsheviks, is... Well, the Bolsheviks didn't exist in 83. 89, so we got that much going. That's cool. Yeah. Like, Nikolai was gone for most of 89, so I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, it's crazy to think, like, you didn't even need the Bolsheviks, really. <laughs> no, that was just <laughs> something. I think it was just Vince's way I'm of giving. i could get paid. But yeah, giving Nikolai bad. a job, and I don't know where he was for most of 89, so Boris became a job guy, and then Nikolai comes back, and they do the gimmick there with the face turn and shit. But. Yeah, so but it's crazy just looking at these teams. There's like there's no teams. There's like five teams in the company, and the Beverly Brothers are barely a team. I mean, I mean they are a team, but they're they're jobbing, and High Energy is really split up quite often and doing jobs as well. So it's like yeah. the Nasties are almost the only full time tag team. Well, the Steiners are coming in now. They're 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 getting ready to wrestle, but it's it's crazy. 
and really, uh, you know, this confused me a little bit. I didn't really expect this. I was thinking, you know, much like the demise of the tag teams, I thought we had seen the demise of the managers. And really, we had because Bobby Heenan wasn't managing and Slick was no longer doing his thing as a heel. Everything had really changed up a lot. Jimmy Hart was managing like a tag team and not like 50 people anymore. So it felt to me like we no longer had managers until I started writing them all down for this show. And then I realized, holy shit, there may be more managers here moving into 93 than there were, you know, during, you know, the heyday in the late 80s and, and the beginning of the 90s. But that doesn't make them good. So I looked at it and it's like, Slick's the baby face manager for Kamala, which I mean, oh, you have to count it because it happens. But at the same time, ugh, terrible. Paul Bear is there with The Undertaker. Eh, it's by default. Jimmy Hart's still there, but he's really just managing Money, Inc. by this point. The Mountie just left which we'll talk about in a little bit. So it's like Jimmy Hart with Money, Inc. You have Afa with the Head Shrinkers. You have Mr. Fuji, who's now just with Yokozuna, if my memory. No, he's, yeah, because he's not even with Berserker in, uh, in January 93. So he's basically just with Yoko. Sherry, who's with nobody at this point, and she kind of really never comes back as a full-time manager. And Harvey Whippleman, who loses Kamala, and then he'll have Giant Gonzalez at Rumble. And eventually, Mr. Hughes for a little bit in the summer. But these are your managers. So you have two babyface managers, Slick and Bearer. And you have Hart, Afa, Wibbleman, Fuji, Sherry, five heel managers. That's seven managers in your company. And none of them are doing anything worth a shit, if you ask me. So it's uh, really odd. Really odd to see that there, there were seven managers. I didn't really ever think of that until I started writing them down. I go, oh my God, there were this many managers here. And none of them really had any relevance to anything. They were just kind of backdrops to a lot of the characters. The one that was kind of worth a damn was Paul Bear. Sherry, obviously. Shouldn't she be on the other side? Well, yeah, come come Royal Rumble, but we don't know that yet, so. Oh, okay. My bad. Um, <laughs> She's really yeah, the just... rest of them, like, I was just going to say, when you think about, like, the glory days of managers, you know, Jimmy Hart had his whole crew, and right. Bobby Heenan had his, and then... Now it's like Slick has Kamala, Paul Bear has Undertaker, Jimmy Hart has Money, Inc., and then he turns to Hogan, and that's it. Like, Alpha has his team, Harvey has his one guy, and... Uh, Fuji has Yoko, because he's not even with Berserker, so... Yeah, I mean, he has Gonzalez coming up, but right. Mr. Fuji Wibbleman, has yeah. Yoko, and Sherry... Yeah. I don't know what Sherry's doing. I mean, I know she goes to Marty, Marty, Marty gets fired. Marty gets fired immediately, she goes to Tatanka for one night, or whatever that was. Just to get with Luna, and so it's uh, it's very interesting. It's definitely it's a changing of the guard. Of you know, you have all the tag teams, and you have managers, and that was kind of the staple of those teams, or you know, that company. And uh, now it's the complete opposite. It's the top guys, and and that's it. Yeah, and it's so funny because people, you know, it started the talk started in the two thousand. Vince doesn't care about tag teams anymore. Vince. Gave up. There was talk at one point he was going to get rid of tag team wrestling. Maybe not necessarily an actual tag matches, but get rid of the tag titles, get rid of the tag division many years ago. Uh, there was talk of that, you know, way back in WCW, too, with Bischoff near the end of his run there. But it's funny, you know, and then they talk about, you know, there's no managers anymore. They, you know, MVP's there now, and there's some things like that. But over the course of the last uh, 20 years, there have been very few managers, and there's always been that talk of, Vince doesn't like managers anymore. He doesn't want managers anymore. It was 280s and whatever that means. So you can kind of see it all the way back here going into 93. 
he he's clearly lost interest in the tag division, and this these managers aren't really doing a whole lot. Because you talked about Bobby Heenan had a stable, Jimmy Hart had a stable, even Slick had a much smaller stable, but he had a stable. Fuji technically only was given to like one guy because he couldn't really do the promos. So that's why the Orient Express really floundered outside of their sides because they they weren't allowed to cut the promo because you weren't allowed to know that they could speak English. Tanaka being yeah. from Hawaii and, you know, Sato was from Japan, but Paul Diamond obviously being, you know, Caucasian American. So Fuji <laughs> would have to cut these work. promos and don't have no idea. It made sense with Demolition, the way he cut his promos. Uh, he just wanted people yeah. to d- demolish, but I don't know what Fuji can say. That's going to make you believe the Warren Express are going to do anything. <laughs> well, it also helped so. that Axe and Smash could speak when Fuji got done, too. They say they're part. Yeah. yeah. So we look at all of these guys and where they're at here on this roster now, but we have to look at all the guys who are have just left the company and why this company's in the state that it's in right now. We talked about Boss Man getting ready to leave, the Berserkers getting ready to leave, Earthquake's basically gone, Rick Martell's gone. Those are some names. Boss Man, uh, the model Rick Martell. I mean, these these guys are pretty established names. Earthquake, who had the run with Hogan and then, you know, all everything that followed that. These guys are mm-hmm. gone or getting ready to leave the company. And that's not all. We lost a lot of other talent over the last couple months of 1992. The Mountie gave his notice, so they had him do a like a one-minute quick job to Bret Hart, of all people, on TV uh, on his way out. Uh, so the Mountie's gone by the end of October. The British Bulldog and the Warrior both fired at the same time because of the human growth hormone. It was no longer just steroids. They got fired. I think they had HGH, which was also illegal. They were testing Warrior got busted. Story goes, Warrior got busted, not the Bulldog. And Warrior kind of ratted out the Bulldog and got him fired because he goes, well, how come I got fired and the Bulldog didn't get fired? We both bought the same, bought and used the same shit. So then they go and test Bulldog and he gets fired along with the Warrior. So I'm not sure exactly when it happened. It had to be right around the same time as Mountie was on the way out, though. So they're losing all these guys left and right. Then there's Nails, who was going to move from the boss man feud into a feud. And that's proven because they have the stare down on TV. So it exists and it's on, on the, the cover WWE of a magazine. magazine. Yeah. January 93. Yeah. Cover of a magazine. So we're getting ready to see, which thank God it didn't happen, but a nails yes. and undertaker match or feud. Cause the Taker story goes, they were going to, they were going to, well, I don't know if he would have liked that better than the giant Gonzalez at WrestleMania, <laughs> but the story goes, there was going to be a nails undertaker, um, electric chair match, and don't ask me how it was supposed to work at yes. WrestleMania. That would have been awesome. That would have been interesting. So, so Vince anyways, doing his own chamber of horrors, huh? Of course, you know, Nails gets his SummerSlam payoff where he, you know, squashed Virgil in three minutes, and he doesn't like whatever he's getting paid, which Kamala's went on record as saying he was very disappointed with what he got paid for that giant, you know, big, big arena mat, but he fought The Undertaker too. I think that was like the semi-main event of the night. And I'm yeah. not saying that's what drew the house. Um, no, that's not semi-main when you got Savage and Warrior. I meant book like where it was placed on the card. I know Savage oh, okay. and Warrior was in the middle because of the finish. Okay. But, I mean, it, it, you know, it just, you know, Brett and Bulldog follows the Undertaker and Kamala match. Yeah. And he got paid. I don't remember what it was, but it was something, you know, very low when you're, you know, 80,000 people. He wasn't happy. So I can only yeah, imagine what, what Nails, who had been in the company June, July, three months, Got paid to squash Virgil, and there's this dickhead walking in. You know, he's been in the company half year, and, and he's walking into Vince McMahon's office on uh, in December, 
and choking him out or punching him or whatever the hell, you know, the story goes. And then he turns around and says Vince, like, tried to molest him or something, tried to get a lawsuit going on Vince, which nobody believes. And and so many people have refuted that for a variety of reasons. Uh, But that was his story, you know, trying to sue the company to make millions or whatever the hell he was trying to get out of it. Because it was the time they were, like you said, they were under all these sex scandals anyway. So he just joined in to try to rob from the company. And um, that's what it was. But that's another guy they had built as a semi-main eventer. And I'm not saying that because he was talented. I didn't get it. Um, but He had a hot debut, man. That yeah, debut well, was he, insane. I, I hated that because Bossman was uh, – him and Sean were my favorites. Oh, I know Bossman's your guy, but, man, that was a pretty impactful uh, debut. No yeah, I took the it. wind out of my sails when I saw that. I'll tell you that. Like I was just like, wow, I can't believe they did that to the Bossman. And then I, I really felt like the match at Survivor Series fell flat. Uh, they didn't really use the nightstick. He beats him with the boss man slam, and then dude rolls out of the ring and no-sells it, walking backwards. And I know they did the cage matches afterwards, which I thought made more sense. You know, he was in jail. They did the cage matches on the house shows. I never got to see that. I'm sure it wasn't very good. <laughs> Nothing with nails <laughs> not. was. Yeah. But yeah. it is what it is. So the Mountie's gone. These are huge names. Bulldog and the Warrior are gone. That's, That's how nice. Mr. Perfect comes back. That's how some of these other guys get bumped up to main event status because the original story was warrior and believe it if you want to believe it or not so you know whatever depends on who tells the story but warrior was to go heel and work bret hart at royal rumble that's how razor got that slot perfect got warrior slot at survivor series supposedly uh that would have worked i don't know because i'm thinking maybe they were going to put the belt on warrior see my i was talking to my friend about this the other day and i was like just think of this let's say flair says he's done and so they never really put the belt back on him in September. Macho Man keeps it. Warrior wins the Rumble. And then you got Macho and Warrior at, at WrestleMania in 93. That would have been pretty sweet. I, I know there are different times. It's not WrestleMania 7, but there's history there. You could have sold that real well. And I think it would have been it would have been pretty damn good as far as anticipation and wanting to see that. I think that would have been an idea. I don't get how you can turn Warrior heel and... Beat Brett, obviously, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But you saying Hogan's going to come back, join the Rumble, and just squash everybody right away? Oh, I don't know that he was going to be in the Rumble. I don't yeah, know how, how, how do you get, I don't know. The, the, the elephant in the room, and I'm not, no pun intended, but is Yokozuna. What the hell happens to him? Like, how do you just, you can't dump him. So do you even put him in the Rumble? So, like, that's what do, a good what question. Do you do? Who knows? Well, you, 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 you've seen the pictures. Uh, anybody that wants to go out there. And look up like the pictures of the original yeah, uh, I have it. group of guys. Yeah, I remember getting it in the mail, the original picture of the guys that were to be featured in the Rumble match or the Rumble pay-per-view. And Warrior's very prominently featured on the on the front of that. And then he's gone, obviously, in the, the remake of it, and some of some of the other guys that are no longer with the company, by the time it gets closer to Royal Rumble time, they're no longer on the the picture of the pay-per-view, the the, the promotional thing. But I got the original one from my cable company. Uh, in you know, in with the uh, the bill or whatever for that month. So There's I don't know where it is. I'm sure like I still a have it. Some pamphlet. It's like a, a pamphlet. pamphlet. Yeah, it's like a pamphlet. I gotcha. I, I know, like it's in it's in the publications. If you watch, if you look at the very first um, Royal Rumble ad in the magazine, it's, it's the same as the poster. Warriors down there. Uh, I think they have Ric Flair's on there. Um, Bulldogs on there, <laughs> and then you get to the other one. It's like they used they were like real tight and fit together. And then they took out warrior and just replaced it with Mr. Perfect. And I know nail nails was in there too. 
Yeah, Nels is in there. So they had they had to take out like three or four guys, and when they filled them in with the guys that replaced them, <laughs> there's like no there's like a gap there, so it's not as concise and fitting. Um, but I used to I scan them and I used to print them off at like Office Depot or something as a 11 by 14 or something a 16 by 24 poster. And I prefer the original with the Ultimate Warrior and uh, Mr. and um, those guys on there, Bulldog. Those are my, some of my favorite guys of all time. So that's the one I printed out myself. But yeah, it's definitely out there. The Royal Rumble '93 would have been a whole lot better, a whole lot more star power if those guys weren't gone. Yeah, so you lose the bounty who puts in his notice, quits the company. Bulldog and Warrior are fired. Nails is fired for attacking the damn owner of the company. Not a really big loss here, but the genius is gone, which basically gives away that the, they're giving up on the Beverly Brothers. The genius finished up uh, his last date with Survivor Series 92. Funny story there. That was um, Thanksgiving Eve was that year's Survivor Series. And Thanksgiving Day, my grandparents would have Thanksgiving for my aunts and uncles and, and everybody and stuff. Everybody would come over. My cousins would come over. And the cousins that were my age were all wrestling fans. Had a couple of them. And uh, me and one of them, uh, my cousins, Jason, uh, we just happened to pull out my radio and find trying to find something to do in the in the afternoon. And we come across this random wrestling, like special wrestling radio talk show on Thanksgiving. It's like they were like annual thing they do or something. They were just happened to be talking about wrestling. We got lucky, and the genius calls in, and he announced, like, yeah, that was my last night with the company. I'm moving to Europe or something like that. And we were like, so at that point, we didn't, you know, it wasn't even the weekend yet. So we didn't know. We were never known the genius was gone, but it was just kind of like a little interesting inside thing that we got, you know, that maybe nobody else knew at that time that, was, that he was done. So, yeah, the genius is gone as a manager. The Beverly Brothers are basically, like I said, job guys at that point. Sergeant Slaughter's pulled from the Mountie feud. He is pulled out of the ring and kind of made into a WWE official. The Enforcer, he's like watching over everything, however long that lasts anyway. So there's a, there's a lot of names just gone or pulled out of the ring. It's So much stuff has changed. So much stuff has changed. And it really all begins and ends with Warrior and Bulldog. And you can argue Nails only because he was scheduled to work with Taker. But yeah. Gonzalez kind of comes in and fills Ooh. that void anyway. But Bulldog and Warrior, really, both of them gone, it changes. That's huge. Yeah, it changes everything. Everybody else it's, below them has to get elevated. Yeah. It's almost like SummerSlam 92 uh, didn't even happen. Like It did, obviously, but like whatever was relevant on that show or whatever you was building to was completely wasted and um, done before even Survivor Series. So... I kind of wish the steroid scandal never would have happened. I mean, I hate to say that because I love Bret Hart and, you know, guys like Shawn Michaels. It just makes you wonder how long they would have had to have waited for their opportunity if it ever came, if the steroid scandal never happened. But I really would have been interested to see what they had planned for the Warrior after his comeback. Um, It definitely got cut short due to the steroid stuff. But uh, I was was always a giant Warrior fan, but, man, it's like they had nothing for him here. In 92, I really didn't like the direction they were going with them. Teaming with Savage made no sense to me. Not because of their past. It was just, there's these guys are both mega superstars. Yeah, it's like, why are you putting them in tag team matches? And people go, oh, well, the mega powers. Well, yeah, okay. It just, this one didn't click like the mega powers for me at all. Oh, I just don't think the, this is going to sound horrible. 
just because of who's involved, but I don't think the counterpart was on their level. Ric Flair in 92 in WWF was never really looked at as a top guy. No matter how well he worked, he was always considered a WCW guy. He still is. When I watch him in WWF, I'm just thinking, that's a WCW guy. And um, I don't know if that would ever change, but Razor Ramon and Ric Flair aren't Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase in 1988. I'm sorry. They're not even Zeus well, and Macho Man in 1989. Yeah, and, Razor's um, definitely not. I mean, he's just... yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's just different times. So, like, it didn't make sense. Like, to me, when you have Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior on, this, on the same side of the coin and you're looking over at anybody, it's not going to work in the realm of the WWF unless it's a Hulk Hogan or something. You know, somehow one of, them, one of these teams turned heels or whatever. But other than that, nobody was going to measure up to those guys on that side of the ledger. Right, and they do a decent job going out and trying to find somebody as fast as they can. Like, Gonzalez, I don't know when the deal was made. He was already going to come in, I'm sure, by this point. But Gonzalez yeah, well, December, fills, replaces... Yeah, cut that bomb. I'm going to yeah. drop a bomb. And But you figure, like, Gonzalez kind of plugs in for Nails. Perfect plugs in for the Warrior, even if they're not maybe necessarily both on the same tier. But he but he was... Fat, like, they somebody came up with that idea, and he they did find somebody to plug into that spot. Bulldog really had nobody that replaced him, and that's in that top as high as you can go on the on that semi main event slot, that upper you know upper mid card whatever you want to call it spot. Bulldog's above Crush, he's above Tatanka, he's definitely above like Marty Janetti, but he's Bulldog gone. Is basically, main event at that point. And so for Bulldog to go, your next man up's like Tatanka, which is not the Bulldog. So it definitely, not. It definitely changed the entire game as far as your roster goes. And perfect, you know, and I love him more than the Warrior, but perfect was no Warrior as far as over with the fans. I mean, yes, he was over his hell at points here, but he still wasn't like remembered like the Warrior. So, no, he's definitely not. So, it's just almost forgotten. It's crazy, uh, you know, how much uh, this changed everything. And then you, uh, you know, that's just where you are with the roster. And uh, I promised to tell the Paul Diamond story, so I'll do that before we finish up here. So, I talked about Max Moon, basically the character of the comic kid was originally promised, or Ray Limpago, uh, originally, was supposed to be Conan. Yes, that Conan in that gimmick, that gear. That gear was made for Conan. There's, I think there's a match in the Hidden Gems whenever they come, if they ever come to uh, the Peacock, you'll see that Conan was in the gimmick, he worked the dark matches. He'd already been promised the, the gimmick that Vince would have never spent all that money on all that nonsense. Uh, if no, Conan, he, Conan was the biggest thing there was in Mexico by this point. Make, he's, he was the Hulk Hogan of Mexico. So yes. it was it was Conan's decision that I'm not going to do this shit. <laughs> he goes back to Mexico and makes a zillion dollars down there, so it didn't hurt him any. In fact, no. I'm, I'm betting he was getting paid a lot less to work for Vince than he was getting paid down there in Mexico. He comes up, he does a couple matches, dark matches, uh, just to get the gimmick, like, Feel the feel for the gimmick, put the the gimmick on and make sure it works and all this horse shit. And he decides this is not for me and fuck this shit. This isn't what, you know, what I signed up for. And he's, he's gone. And now we paid all this money into this stupid costume. And instead of just going, fuck it, pal, it's like, who do we got that can fit into the costume? Paul Diamond. And so Paul Diamond, who Sean doesn't have the pool here in 92. So it wasn't Sean that got him the spot, I'm sure, but they, they, they've been friends forever. So uh, mm-hmm. that probably kind of worked out. So Paul Diamond why, probably worked out for Max Moon working that first Raw anyway. 
um, gets the Max Moon character. And it's originally the comic kid. Then you hear for uh, at least one, one match, it's Maximilian Moon. And then he becomes just Max Moon. And he's Max Moon for, you know, a few weeks. And then he's just gone for a few weeks. And what happens was he got fired. Paul Dine was fired from the company and Vince said, fuck it. He didn't find a third guy to, to, to put the, uh, the, the gimmick on. It was going to be buried. Uh, unfortunately, Max Moon comes back, like I said, to replace Lance Cassidy on the house shows and some TV. And yes, even the Royal Rumble, he winds up working the Rumble match. But the reason he was fired, and I know you know the story by now, Steve, is uh, Paul Diamond was actually caught having an affair with Tatanka's wife because for some reason, Tatanka decided he was going to take his wife on the road with him. Maybe he should have had more conversations with Randy Savage on how to handle that. You know, <laughs> take it the way you want. But he, he didn't. And this is what happened. Paul Diamond was uh, sleeping with Tatanka's wife, which was a no-no. I'm sure wrestlers did it all the time. But, you know, he got found out. Caught. Yeah, and he got caught. And, you know, it's, it's this era now. This isn't 1984. So, naturally. Uh, what's his name? Finding Sting in bed with Dark Journey. Oh, Dick Slater. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, he found out about it later. But, yeah, he still made Sting. Sting paid for that, though. Like so. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But like, he got to keep Tatanka, his job. I don't, I don't see Tatanka. Oh, kicking ass now. Cornering Paul Diamond and, dude, I'm going to kick your ass for banging my wife. Like. I'm just going to get you fired. It's 93. It's not, what, 89? Yeah, so, so this is like the tail end of 92. And I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure Tatanka was the one that went to somebody, said something. And here you have Tatanka, who's your undefeated Native American. You've been pushing him for a year now, uh, you know, trying to get him to that, that next level, that, that almost main event level, really. Trying, I said, Steve. I didn't say he was. And then you have Paul Diamond, who is your second version of, of Max Moon. Who you are? It's already it's already a flop anyway. It's already a failure anyway. So what do you do? Well, say goodbye to Paul Diamond. He was fired. Of course, he gets rehired there, and he works. You know, gets gets a little extra time on on the road thanks to Steve Armstrong quitting abruptly, giving notice out of nowhere. He does get lucky there, and he gets to work a little longer with the company. But for all intents and purposes, Max Moon's pretty much done. I mean, he does work Raw and he works the Rumble match, but not a whole lot after that. Yeah, that's the story, though. Uh, Paul Diamond caught with the uh, Native American Tatanka's wife. And I don't know how long that was going on, but it was the way it was always worded. It was more than a one time deal. So it is what it is, man. (laughs) You reap what you sow on both ends, I suppose. Yep. So we move on. We'll look at January feuds coming in. And this goes back to the roster. This is scary. You know, at any point in time, you could list like eight feuds going on in the WWF, and maybe that bottom feud was like, ugh, that's a little scary. Ron Bass and Junkyard Dog working the house shows, ugh. But it doesn't get any scarier than this because there really is nothing. Like, we're moving into a new year, and our feuds are Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair, awesome. Sean and Marty, awesome. Nasty Boys and Money, Inc., well, the matches probably aren't that great, but the story's there. That Jimmy Hart screwed over one of his teams in favor of the other team. That's it. <laughs> That's it's your feuds. And the Money Inc. Nasties feud, it really isn't being told on TV outside of the, the initial. That's more for the house shows. So mm-hmm. we know we know we got Sean and Marty at the Rumble. Perfect and Flair, you know, go into the Rumble and, and you know, this, they do shit on TV. They there's the issue in the match at the Rumble, and then, you know, the big match that follows on TV the, the following night. Outside of that, there's nothing. We know the Undertaker is eventually going to be with with uh, the Giant Gonzalez, but Nails is gone. 
So Taker's left feuding with nobody right now. We know Brett's going to work Razor at the Rumble, but there's really no feud behind it. I mean, you can argue getting once we get into January, Razor attacks Owen, which felt forced, like we need something. So it's just having attack Owen. Um, and then they do the, the back and forth, Brett doing the promo and Razor on the on the uh, original inception of the Titan Tron, if you want to call it that, which I always thought was the cool. video wall there. Yeah, the video, yeah. yeah. So uh, very cool for its time anyway. And I love the way Razor just owned that promo, just shitting all over Brett, cutting him off. It's good stuff. But as of right now, it's just a match announced for the pay-per-view. Like, what's okay, he's going for the belt. So really, we have three feuds. I don't know that at any point in the company's history, up until this point, there were three feuds. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's insane. And if you look, each one, well, Sean's a champion. Money Incorporated's a champion. So Brett's a champion, so that doesn't count. But Flair and Perfect are really the only non-title feud right now. That's that's pretty much all we got, and that's a scary. It's scary. Yeah, it's that's a scary. scary. Yeah, they really have no idea what they're. There's just nothing. They have no ideas. And, uh, I, you know, I think the problem with that is, is you know, you you're just praying to God that your houses are sold off those top matches because uh, if they're not, there ain't nothing else there to cover for it. And what's odd is they don't even want to give away some of those matches, uh, like the the Perfect and Flair match. They're not even really doing that on the house shows, which we'll talk about here in a minute when I run down the house shows. But the the main matches in the house shows for January. But it's, uh, yeah, it's scary to think that that's it. We have no other ideas for anybody. It's crazy. Took a couple notes here from The Observer. Meltzer noted that business continues to fall. Um, the WWF lost its television at this point by the end of 92 in Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, Switzerland. So they're losing TV in, in countries like Germany. That's a huge, that's a huge deal. Uh, they no longer like, they can't watch the WWF for at least however long this, you know, this lasts till they pick up a new, new channel. And, uh, Meltzer also reported after the fourth quarter of 1992 in which its television ratings failed to show the expected seasonal increase. And before that coming off the lowest ratings in its entire history, talking about earlier in 92, the WWF has decided to revamp its cable lineup. Starting the weekend of January 9th, the new Saturday morning show called WWF Mania will debut in the 10 a.m. time slot. Uh, the new host, the new new guy coming to the company was Todd Pettengill. I've, I've listened to him do a few interviews. Todd, Vince basically heard him on the radio. Todd had a big, I don't know if he still does or not, but for many, many years prior to and after his run in the WWF, Todd had a huge radio show. Um, it won a lot of awards. It was like number one in shit, uh, local market anyway, New York City, which is huge, like Scott and Todd, the morning radio show. And Vince heard him, much like he heard Rob Bartlett, much like he saw Jameson's character perform at a stand-up or whatever. He got this one right, I thought. Todd did a great job as a uh, as a shiller, and you know he wasn't a great commentator, but he didn't want to commentate, but... I thought he was a great show host and did the gr- good job selling the pay-per-views and in the, in the you know when they when they would do the the pay-per-view gimmicks. So, primetime also gone uh, beginning January 11th. It's going to be replaced by a show called you may have heard of it, Steve. Monday Night Raw. They're changing things up. Ratings are in the toilet, the worst they've ever been in company history. Uh, they didn't increase over the fall and and. and October, November, December, like they normally do when everybody's back in the house and can't do shit anymore because of the weather. So shit, things are in the dumps, man. That's an understatement. It's definitely bad times, uh, and it doesn't get any better. Not anytime soon. Um, Not till probably, what, 97 
do they pick back up? I mean, they 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 hold steady. It's not like right now where you're getting like one million viewers. They were still pulling in like twos and sometimes threes, depending on what's going on, which is bad ratings in ninety two, ninety three. It's a little different in two thousand twenty one, but they still did well. They were like, if you do it today, the numbers that like WCW is pulling in two thousand, like if, if you could guarantee that in twenty twenty one, WCW would still be around. Um, because that's some good TV numbers, but yeah, it, it's crazy. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for forever for WWF. Absolutely not. They had a great fall, <laughs> like Humpty Dumpty, man. Massive man. fall. Yeah, it, and it took a while. It to wasn't really... like, uh, to be honest, it didn't feel like it was abrupt. It, you could just kind of sense it as soon it was, as yeah. WrestleMania Eight was over. It just felt like a whole new company, and Hogan was gone, and because he, he you know, he flirted with retirement and went and did suburban commando or whatever it was that was good he was mr nanny maybe one of those movies but when you say you're going to retire and then after your match is over with sid that was not really decisive and then you're gone people like well i guess he isn't coming back (laughs) so uh, they left with him uh, a lot of them that's really the turning point to me it just felt like it was completely downhill after that yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the roster had changed so much by 1992 as well. Like, everybody, most of the guys at WrestleMania 7 were at WrestleMania 6 and WrestleMania 5. So there was an established troop of guys that had worked, you know, for years with the company. And that slow decline of those guys really lost a lot of those people. And like you said, Hogan's gone. Sid's in there. They've turned him heel, but the fans want to cheer him. And then he's gone, like, <laughs> like almost immediately after WrestleMania 8. The Warriors back, but... The ran the uh, the casual fan that knows who the warrior is, is looking at him completely a lot smaller, and that's when the story oh that's the uh, second Ultimate Warrior the first one died I don't know if you ever heard those when you were growing up oh dude I, 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 people see me wearing like a wrestling shirt or something like oh you like the Ultimate Warrior I'm like yeah do you know he died and the one that came back was a different one and I'm like no I, like how do you explain it to people that don't get it you know that don't know I'm like yeah yeah. Yeah, you that. just go along with it because you're not going to have that conversation. <laughs> like, I don't want to have a conversation with you. So, yeah. I, I had an uncle. I, I have an uncle have that uh, he even used to. My, I had an uncle. Uh, still have him. Um, but, I mean, I'm talking past tense in, in regards to what he used to say. He used to always talk about the second Undertaker. And this is in the 90s. So, I don't know what the hell he was talking I know he looked a lot different from 1990 by the time, you know, the hair was in the face and things. And maybe that's what he was going off of. But he used to always talk about not just how there was two warriors, but he would talk about like the the, other, the second Undertaker. Well, Brian, I never that, that, game, that angle was that what he no no about, no or? no no because he didn't watch it that hardcore. He was just talking oh, okay. about like there was a different guy playing the character, and I never went into counter like I wasn't going to argue with him or explain it to him. It's like it's not even worth it, dude. It's like yeah yeah just yeah. Believe second, what you believe. Yes, We're second Undertaker. Here. Yep, that's it. So it's kind of funny. Uh, as we close out, man, uh, I want to talk. Want to look real quick at some January stuff, so that we're not stuck doing that on the uh, next episode when we actually look at all the TV and stuff for January of 1993. Looking at the house show matches, like everybody, they call them the the marriages, the guys they were working each other every night here in January of '93, and it's kind of interesting. It's like I talk, the Beverlys are relegated to, as I already said, filling in for injured guys most of the month. They're filling in for Razor, who eventually gets a knee injury. They're filling in for the Berserker for an undisclosed injury. I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with him. He basically works that match with Perfect, and he doesn't work again on TV anyway. He comes back and works the Rumble, and that's his last night, I believe. Or maybe he works like a 
another house show or something after that. But he's ba- he's gone before February. He's gone by the end of January. So the Beverly's are coming in, just filling in these singles matches for all these guys. Well, they're injured. So you go here and you go there. So they're not even really being used properly. Crush still working the undercard, just squashing guys. Skinner, the brawler, Repo Man, Papa Shango, all of them. It didn't matter who. Again, these guys are interchange- interchangeable. So the brawler's interchangeable with Papa Shango at this point. They're all doing jobs for Crush in January. Tito Santana is actually getting wins over the Repo Man and Skinner. Again, there's that, you know, these are the undercard matches on the house shows, obviously, but these guys are just relegated to the undercard. And even though some of them have been established as a much higher guy than another one, they're still interchangeable the way they're being booked here. The Beverly's, Tito, Repo Man, Skinner, Papa Shango, all of them. Um, these, there's nothing for them and they're not doing anything. We got Skinner even gets a win here. This is how bad Paul Diamond's in the doghouse comes back and replaces Lance Cassidy and he's doing jobs to Skinner. So Skinner over Max Moon, uh, the first half of the month. And then Terry Taylor, uh, gets some wins over Jimmy Powers also. Uh, Taylor, uh, Jimmy Powers actually comes in and he does some, uh, replacement matches for Lance Cassidy as well here in January. So it's just interesting. Look at all this undercard crap though. Like half the, Half the house show is just undercard guys. Um, Steiner's getting warm-up matches on the house show, Steve, with Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy as the, the executioners, the, the guy. I think they work them on Raw, that first Raw. So the Steiners are basically working job guys, squash matches on the house shows at this point, instead of working the Beverly's or, or whatever. So that's what we're getting on the house shows right now. Bob Backlund over the Berserker. The, on the nights the Berserker isn't uh, working uh, – he isn't injured. So Backlund, again, undercard. I mean, I get where they were trying to go with him, but in Berserker, we see where his too. Backlund basically pinning the Berserker every now. That had to be an interesting match. Talk about a contrast of styles. Can you imagine what's going through Bob's head as he returns to wrestling? And that's what's uh, standing across from him in the ring. Um, and then Head Shrinkers, you know, like you said, solid opener, Survivor Series, uh, over, the high, over high energy throughout January. So they could... Continuing those matches, just putting the head triggers over, building them up. Virgil and Tatanka flip-flop opponents throughout the month, back and forth. Virgil, for the first half of the month, beats the Brooklyn Brawler. Second half of the month, jobs to Damien Demento, so you can kind of see where everybody's pecking order is here. Tatanka, first half of the month, over Damien Demento. And then second half of the month, beats the Brawler. So even Tatanka, who is like upper mid-card, is working the Brooklyn Brawler on, on house shows and Damian Demento. So it's clearly they have no idea what to do with anybody, almost anybody at this point. Yeah, man, this is uh, <laughs> it's a far cry from the glory days. I don't want that to be the theme, and that's all we talk about like all the time. No, there'll be good matches and good things and good angles and things. Yeah, you have to look I at mean, where we're at to like, see where we get to. It's kind of like when you look at, you know, the Patriots, they were so good for 20 years, and then all of a sudden Brady leaves, and they kind of suck. When, you, when you're on top for as long as WWF was, like, if you look in the history of wrestling, there's spurts. It's up and down. It's a roller coaster. People like to say that now, and it, it, it's true to an extent. I'm still waiting for the roller coaster to go back up, <laughs> for the WWE anyway. But most companies don't experience a seven- or eight-year, nine-year run where they were making so much money hand over fist like they were with Hogan on top. And at some point, the bubble is going to burst, and you're going to have to go to the very, very bottom and build your way back up. And that, this is that's just what this is. 
this is like the reset button. And when WCW, you know, they're spending money, they're bringing guys in. I mean, they're they're doing their thing. The the roster pool isn't that huge at this point. I know guys are leaving, but look at the guys that are leaving. Martel's been there off and on for God, 12, 13 years at this point. Earthquake had a long run of, you know, three years. Like he's done. He's a big guy. He needs a break. And boss man, whatever the hell was going on in his head. Uh, so some of these guys are leaving and they just need to recharge their batteries. As you see, some of them come back by the end of 93 Martel's back. Earthquake comes and goes for the next two or three years until he gets the, the gig with WCW with Hogan. You know, the perfect storm for AEW was all those guys being available and signed at the same time. So you can kind of start a company with those five people. This is the perfect storm of, okay, everybody that's left is on their last legs because they've been going at it for three or four years now. So it's like, okay, we got to, everybody's just going to go and we're going to restart. And these are the guys we're going with. So that's just, I just don't know how you let it get, get as bad as it does because the argument with Tom Brady is my, the only thing I can say about that is that's real life. When Tom Brady was gone, they no longer have Tom Brady, who I, who I hate, well, by the I, way. So, and I'm defending him here. But I mean, yeah, I, I as, you, but once I he's mean, gone, he's gone. Here, you have the capability to tell any story you want. So, do you? Yeah, you do. Because I mean, you, can, you have to but... put, dude, there's three feuds. You can't tell me they couldn't have come up with something for somebody. We talk about who, some of the, though? I don't know, but the, somebody, I mean, I can book, you know, I, I've sat here in fantasy booked enough to know that I've, I can book anybody into a fucking something if I wanted to. <clears throat> Is it going to get over? I mean, like, if you just go back up to the roster and you look at it, we, how many, like, each category, like, well, where do you go here? What do you want to do? Marty would have made sense and it would have lasted longer if whatever happened after the Rumble didn't happen. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like a series of unfortunate events and you can't. I know it's real life, but you can't lose all five of your guys on the offensive line and then trot five new guys out there, and all of a sudden you're going to be just as good as you was a week ago. You can't just lose guys like the Mountie, who's been established for two years. You can't lose a Bulldog, a Warrior, who's your former champions. Hell, he got fired after he lost the belt. Like You know, you lose the belt, and then he's gone. Nails is another story, but Hogan's already gone. I know he's coming back, but he's been gone for a year now or eight months. So, I mean – your bread and butter is gone. Yeah, you can book anybody. You have the ability to do that, and you have the ability to write whatever story you want. But it has to work, and it has to get over. And you can't just pick anybody to replace a bulldog and a warrior or a mountain. No, but I, I look at these house show matches. You can't tell me they can't come up with some better <clears throat> opponents for some of these guys. I mean, I think they should have went to one one show, like you know, an A team, and that's it. And put your big names against each other. You I think by this point, I think by this point shows. they were doing just, you know, one show for most of the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, I mean, they make mistakes. Here's another mistake. Bam Bam Bigelow's back, uh, you know, but it's Vince's fetish. Oh, they got to fight big guys, pal. You saw what that match with boss man looks like at Royal rumble. And for all of January here, we have Bam Bam working either the boss man or this couldn't have been nowhere near as good. Typhoon. <laughs> Bam Bam's going over the boss man and typhoon into house shows all January. I would have gave Bam Bam somebody he could throw around, somebody look more impressive. It's it's Vince's fetish. It's bad booking. Like Bam Bam versus Owen or Bam Bam versus just another, you know, guy like that that that, that he can look impressive with. I can't imagine how terrible the Bam Bam Typhoon matches. And I'm sure there's a that's on Coliseum video somewhere, or it was on a, a, a Mania exclusive or something like that. So I'm sure I'll come across it eventually, but I don't want to, but I'm sure I will. Um and we look at The Undertaker. 
He was supposed to be working with Nails. This is no fault of his own. Gonzalez isn't here yet. And they go back to guys that he feuded with before, which makes sense. But these guys are basically job guys by this point because of Vince, the way he booked them. He didn't have to book Papa Shango into all we've seen is him lose. So we go into January, supposed to be Taker and Nails on the house shows. This is actually a step up. I mean, wrestling wise, Taker and his buddy Papa Shango. And then Shango gets a separated shoulder and he's out till the Rumble, which is everybody always wonders, why did Papa Shango come in and go out so fast in the Rumble match? He had a separated shoulder and he wasn't even really cleared, cleared to work, but they kept him in the Rumble match, maybe for a payday, maybe because they wanted that you know name value like another guy. But that's why Papa Shango comes in early in the, pay- the match and goes out quick. Is he's really shouldn't even have been in the ring. So we got Taker over Shango for the first half of January. And second half of January, it's Taker over the Berserker until Berserker gets injured also. So Taker's working guys he's worked with before. So they're feeding him big guys, guys that had, you know, established. And he's going over guys, but it's nothing new. So it's like a rehash of matches I've already seen at the house show before. Money Incorporated are working with the Nasties on the house shows, which makes sense. Is it going to draw you anybody? You know, is anybody going to pay tickets to go see that? Probably not, but that belongs on the house show. That is your really only your two top tag teams outside of the Steiners who are still getting established as a team in the WWF or the 10 people that don't know who they are from WCW. So they're squashing Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy on the undercard. Money Inc. are going over the Nasties. So the Nasties are doing the job. It's obvious, you know, who, the pecking order there. Yoko is squashing the boss man squashing Earthquake in short matches, and squashing Randy Savage. I don't know if it's a squash, but it wasn't. I, I, I know the reports of the matches. All these matches are very short. So I don't know that he squashed Randy Savage, but he was beating Randy pretty pretty fast. So Yoko's beating all these guys, so he's clearly already getting the push. They uh, Quake comes back to work the Rumble match, so he's doing jobs for Yoko that week going into that at the house shows. And before that, it's Boss Man doing the jobs on the way out. Savage doing the jobs basically on his way back to the commentary table. So they're really pushing Yoko there with some established talent, which that makes sense too. So these last, you know, couple of matches make sense to me. Money Inc., the nasties, the matches Yoko's having. And then Mr. Perfect over Razor Ramon by count out until Razor blows his knee out. And so he gets replaced by Doink, who hadn't been working the house shows yet. It was kind of premature. They didn't want him in the ring yet, but they needed somebody to replace Razor. That's how depleted the roster is. Oh my God, we have nobody to work the semi-main event of our house show. Razor's out. We got to pull the fucking clown out of the crowd and put him on the house shows before he even turns heel, or, or at least before he even wrestles on TV. He's already in the semi-main events of the, of the house shows. You know, then you get the two, you know, big payoff matches. Sean going over Marty and basically what his practice matches, if you want to call him that, for their upcoming match at the Royal Rumble. And I don't know if you've, you know, heard the story or not about the agents, I don't know which agent it was, if it was Lanza or whoever, they watched the match and they called Vince and sold him on the match for the Rumble. Not saying it wasn't already booked, but they told him, oh my God, that was the greatest match I've ever seen. And, you know, you got to put this on the pay-per-view. It's going to be a, you know, he didn't use these words five star, but basically it's going to be, you know, the greatest match of all time. Uh, unbelievable. You know, that's what the agents did. They would call Vince and tell him their thoughts. And, uh, and report everything that was going on backstage and in the ring and whatever. If somebody was getting lazy, if somebody's putting on a great match or whatever. So Vince, that's another reason why they had issues at Rumble. Vince was expecting this classic and got, you know, a, an average match uh, between Sean and Marty. But 
for by all accounts, Sean over Marty every night on the house shows in January leading up to the Rumble as they practiced, quote-unquote, practiced the match for the Rumble, even though it really wasn't a practice because the entire idea of the Rumble match was different and slower paced than what they were doing on the house shows. And then, of course, Bret Hart, early on, at least in January, going over Ric Flair every night, or even did the Iron Man match the one night, 60-minute Iron Man match. I think that was in Boston, but I'm not sure. And um, that's where we're at house show-wise, though. So, on top, pretty decent stuff. Sean, Marty, Brett, and Flair. Um, but outside of that, man, it's 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 pretty bad. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good way to sum it up. And you know, I used to go to all the house shows during this era when it was like, Shitsville, because it was easy to get tickets. I don't, I'm not saying they were cheaper, but they weren't very expensive back then anyway. Um, but it was easy to get them. Like, I didn't, you know, I had de- better seats. And uh, I can't tell you I remember any of these matches. So, Jen, if, if, they were, if they came to town around this time, I must have even said, nah, none of this really. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't want to see Sean and Marty or, or Brett and Flair, but I, I know I never saw any of this. So I, I must have missed this tour through, through my area if, if they did come through in, in, this, era, in this period. I just, I don't remember any of this. That's where we are, house show-wise. And as we uh, finish up, I, I made a note of January tryouts. That's what I'm going to do each, each month. We, we do a month of uh, the WWF is um, look at all the guys who got tryouts and see who made it, who didn't. And funny enough, none of these guys make it, Steve. But we'll look at the names anyway real quick. Scott Putsky, the son of uh, Polish power Ivan Putsky. Scott does get a little run there during that light heavyweight time period, even though he's jacked out of his gills and... Doesn't look like a light heavyweight. Blows out his leg and never to return there. Think he does some jobs in WCW after that, maybe. Scott Putsky, Bill Irwin, which surprised me. I didn't remember that, but he actually makes it to TV. I posted that on YouTube. I think I posted it on Twitter, too. A match with Bill Irwin and El Matador, where Tito actually picks up the win. While Bill Irwin gets a shot here in uh, 93, January 93, long before his goon period in 96. Horace Boulder, Horace Hogan in WCW. Basically, as a favorite of Hulk Hogan, as you might imagine, Horace Hogan gets a, uh, a shot at um, working for the company, and he doesn't make it here. Back to FMW with Horace Boulder here in 1993. There was a couple of matches between two guys by the name of Cheetah Kid and Johnny Rotten. Any guess who those two guys are, Steve? I got nothing for you, man. Okay. Cheetah Kid is Rocco Rock. Johnny Rotten would become Johnny Grunge. And um, they actually worked each other over in Europe a bit, too. So just before Public Enemy, uh, Cheetah Kid and Johnny Grunge trying out individually here in the WWF against one another. It's kind of funny. Um, Double Trouble, who were the undertakers in the old ICW, the Savoldi ICW, IWCCW, right before The Undertaker debuted. And Vince never went to check. And these guys were smart enough in 1990 to threaten to file a lawsuit by, you know, at least by this period. And the deal was, well, we'll give you a job if you guys don't sue us for millions of dollars for the rights to the Undertaker name, because they were the Undertakers first. And so they gave him a shot as double trouble. They were two, like, 500-pound guys, Steve. And it, it, they were about as bad as you can imagine. And they didn't last very long. They never made it to TV, to the best of my knowledge. But, yeah, they worked a, a handful of house shows. Um, and I, as far as I know, I don't think they ever got paid any royalty rights for the Undertaker name. So it is what it is. There was a Samoan who wrestled in California. That's all I got on this guy named the Volcano Kid. And needless to say, as I said already, none of these guys made it in the company here in January tryouts. 
And um, we talked about injuries, too. Papa Shango, separated shoulder. Berserker, undisclosed. I don't know what happened there. Razor blows out his knee, which a lot of people didn't know that going into the Rumble. Like, he went into the Rumble with an injured knee. So it's something interesting to look at when we're actually watching that match as part of the watch-along. And then to close out the show, just some quick notes. Lex Luger on his way in, doing the Narcissus gimmick. That's the big buildup all month in January with Bobby Heenan. The USWA begins crossover storylines with the WWF, which is really fun. Looking forward to taking little small looks into that. Jerry Jarrett has been brought in to the company as, well, according to everyone except Bruce Pritchard, Jerry Jarrett was brought in and being groomed to replace Vince McMahon because everyone expected Vince to go to prison when the trial starts at the beginning of 94. So Jerry Jarrett was going to be groomed all year in 93 to replace Vince. Now, Bruce Pritchard swears that's not true, but every other human being on Earth says the opposite. Plus, why the fuck else did Vince hire Jerry Jarrett, make him move to fucking Stanford, and teach him everything, and let him book Raw for the ex- however many first months of the, of the year? We'll be talking a whole lot more about Jerry Jarrett with the company. The Headlock on Hunger, the big Somalian relief fund thing they got coming up in January, we'll be discussing. And um, that's pretty much it. That's, uh, that wraps up this episode. Just kind of looking at some of the news and notes we'll be touching on uh, moving forward here. So the next episode, Steve, is January 1993. We'll be talking all about everything leading up to the Royal Rumble, including the Raw that follows the Royal Rumble. Yeah, good stuff. It has to be a top five Raw all time for me, uh, the one right after Royal Rumble. I, I think it's, and I talk about it, I know I talk about it on the next show, I will. Um, I recorded it after the Royal Rumble, and so when I watched the Rumble all the time, when I taped it from the pay-per-view, I watched the following Raw just to see it, so I was able to watch um, Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair all these years, but uh, you know, before the network, before other things, and the internet, I was able to watch it, so... Um, Definitely one of my favorite matches, one of my favorite shows uh, all time. And um, the Raw, not Royal Rumble. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, that Flair Hennig match, it's, uh just had a different feel for it than any WWF yeah. match I could think of prior to that. Very different everything. It was just a very di- – it just didn't feel WWF. So in, in no, a good way, in a good way. No, absolutely, yeah. And I, I just feel like – you know Ric Flair respected the shit out of Mr. Perfect, and he gave him one hell of a rub. I mean, that's really the best way to explain it. I mean, if you're going out of a company and going to another one, that's how you do it. That's that's exactly how you would do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. So we're going to touch, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to talk, we're going to cover Superstars, Wrestling Challenge, and Raw for every week. And then if anything's in- interesting or points and notes I want to make from the WWF Mania program or All-American or Spotlight or something like that. I will touch on it briefly if there's an exclusive match that kind of caught my eye that I might put on social media for everyone to look at. But basically, we're, we're going to be focusing on superstars, wrestling challenge, both syndicated shows, and then the new Monday Night Raw program coming to the WWF here in January 1993. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Just everything's changing and it's going to be fun. I, I think we're going to have a really fun time covering the year course in two weeks time after we do the january 93 show we'll be doing the royal rumble watch along in which steve will be giving away the autographed brett hitman heart wwf 8 by 10 uh very cool appreciate steve doing things like that for for the, the show and and really for our, our followers and all you guys have to do is follow us on twitter at wrestling grenade that's at r-a-s-s-l-i-n grenade 
All you got to do is follow us, and you enter your chance to win the 8x10. So, Bret Hart, autographed 8x10. Thank you once again, Steve, for that. Absolutely, man. But, um, yeah, that wraps up the show. We looked at the roster. It's scary. We saw the declining ratings. It's scary. The house show is the situation is scary. Terrifying. But yes. Okay, that's, that's an excellent word to use for it. <laughs> so, things can't get much worse from here, and I don't think that they really do. I mean, here in 93, like, there's a lot of bad. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. I think we're going to find some some fun things, too. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the watch along. I haven't really sat through that rumble in a while, and it should be a good time. So until um, next week, Steve, appreciate you being here. I'm looking forward to talking all about January 1993 in the WWF. It's it's all the Razor and Brett stuff leading up to the rumble, some, some fun Mr. Perfect Ric Flair stuff, a lot of good stuff there with some of the higher-up talent anyway. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. All right, guys, so thank you for listening to this initial debut episode of the WWF in 1993 here on the Memory Grenade. Of course, that's episode 33 overall. So episode 34 is January 93 in the WWF. Episode 35, the free prize giveaway, the Bret Hart 8x10 autographed, as well as the Royal Rumble watch long. So stay tuned. I want to thank you guys for sticking around while we were away. I know I was down sick for a while, but I'm back, obviously, up and running. Steve's here. He's he's uh, doing a little better, too. He had a little health issues as well. So it just kind of worked out that way that we're, we're both up and running again. So I'm looking forward, Steve, to, to next week and beyond here in the WWF 1993. I don't like the way we had the break, but the break really helped. Um, my batteries are recharged. I'm more energized and ready to go. That little break was nice, and I kind of needed it, I felt like. But we're back at it, and um, definitely look out for this one. And also, we're going to get those Monday Night Warfare kick shows kicking off again, too. So uh, we got some more giveaways and things like that for those episodes as well. So. Stay tuned, folks. We're just right, getting right started. On. Absolutely. Just getting started here on The Grenade in January 1993. Like Steve said, always check out our other shows as well. Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We're heading into the NWO era very shortly. here. That's going to be interesting and fun. So until then, until next time, guys, I really appreciate you guys sticking around, waiting for the show to drop. It's dropped. I can't believe the numbers we did already since I put up the announcement of our return, the, the, the podcast we recorded over the weekend. The numbers today have been insane, so I'm, I can only imagine they'll be even better for this, I would hope. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, and thank you guys once again here. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. We'd like to thank our loyal fan base of listeners as you guys continue to listen, download, and subscribe to shows. We can't thank you guys enough, and please continue to spread the word and retweet all the posts from our Twitter account to help the brand continue to grow. Of course, all of our shows are available on WrestleCopia.com, but you can also find The Grenade on all of your favorite podcast streaming apps. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Google Pod, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Amazon, iHeartRadio, you name it, and we're probably there. And a reminder that you, too, can win free prizes as listeners of The Grenade as part of our continuous free prize giveaway offers. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter, at Rasslin' Grenade. That's it, R-A-S-S-L-I-N, Grenade. It's that simple. Be a follower of the Grenade, and you're automatically entered in each and every free prize giveaway contest. As always, we encourage you to stop on over to our very own Patreon account, which you can find at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, where we offer an insane 14 tiers of goodies, with prices available for everyone's price range. Prices start as low as $1, a $1 tier. 
to simply show your support of the Fledgling Podcast Network. Or you can select our $5 tier, the all-access tier, which is always offering up rare goodies, as well as complete access to our entire watch-along series, featuring prior WWF and WCW pay-per-views and special events that make a great complimentary piece to our Monday Warfare podcast. We're also making our way through the entire WWF Coliseum video series as a watch-along project on Patreon. Other shows in our watch-along series include episodes of WWF Saturday Night's Main Event, the classic Steamboat vs. Ric Flair one-hour match from Clash of the Champions 6, and so much more. We're always adding new content and shows to the Watch Along series as part of the all-access tier over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's $5 for the all-access tier. And again, we thank all of our loyal listeners for everything you've done. And with all of that out of the way, it's that time again. Time to say goodbye, but we will return next week. Until that time, this is Ray Russell, and for my co-host Stephen Ekstad saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there!